Welcome to the Crash Course Podcast, everyone. I want to take a moment at the very beginning of the podcast to talk about something really important. Um, this past week, I got engaged, and I'm actually really excited about it, and instead of doing some kind of silly intro or have... Steve make fun of me, which is usually the case. Raise your glasses! Yeah! Yes! 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 So much for the serious tone. Um, <laughs> I did. I got engaged to Sarah Bisman, who's guest on the podcast, a member of the Wasties, um, TV actress. Um, we met a little over a year ago, and I got to propose to her at the end of her Wasties set at the Waste Station last week. Um, and it's probably the best decision I've ever made in my life, because she makes me happier than anyone ever has in my whole entire life. So I just wanted to share with you guys who know her from the Wasties and being a guest both by herself and with the Wasties that we got engaged and we're very happy and um, I actually got to spend the whole weekend with her after the engagement at Steampunk World's Fair, which I went to last year. And um, and it, the really cool thing this year was I got to work with a bunch of bands that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. So obviously you guys remember that Painless Parker performs with the Wasties, but he also, Noam also performs on his own as Painless. Of course. Um, him, Baroque and Hungry, who I know you like their name, though we have not heard you haven't heard their music yet. But every time I bring them up, you like their the, name the is good enough. Yeah, they don't need music. <laughs> with a name. Um, Eli August and the Abandoned Buildings, who I've mentioned, and the Wasties um, played a ton of shows of the weekend. It was actually a ton, a ton of fun. Um, and one of these years, I'm going to get you guys to actually come with me. Because it's out in Piscataway. It's actually not that far. That's so. not far at all. My dad worked there, like, every day for 30 years. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So, I went to Steampunk World's Fair 2014 this past weekend. And I got to see all these bands perform. But something you would have really liked, Steve, is they have an artist Don't who's... Don't tell me what I'd like. <laughs> there was an artist who's done a lot of work for Steampunk World's Fair. was actually commissioned to build a giant robot that lights up. and But... As if it were from the steampunk era. So it's very boxy. It has pincer hands. Does it, it run lights up. On, on condensed water vapor? Its chest cavity is completely clear. And you can does see it, does inside. It run, what does it run on? Does it run on burning logs? Yes. That's kind of cool. That's the steampunkiest thing I've ever heard. It doesn't run on actual firewood. It's plugged in, I think. But it doesn't then move. It's not steam power. It's a statue. You're ruining it. Just walk. That should be for the Cyberpunk's World Fair. Walk off stage. <laughs> and speaking of Steampunk World's Fair, um, I did meet a lot of people who were interested in the podcast, so if this is your first episode listening, welcome, new fans. Um, it was a pleasure meeting all of you at the Eli August booth, or if you happen to be at the different sets. Oh, and by the way, don't be fooled. He's very private about his engagement, but you can watch it on Xander.tv. It's all very public. Yes. Yeah, I didn't want the world to know, except I did it on a public stream at a, at a bar. If I'm not mistaken, did, it also I, did has you think full, of that though? If, did yeah. you think of that when you did it? Absolutely, okay. I was get, banking on if, it. If I'm not mistaken, it's also at the very tail end of the actual set yes. as well. So you get to watch this great music conglomerate, various songs, all sorts of fun and games. There was actually like one band and, after the proposal, and then you get up there and do one of the scariest things I've ever heard of in in this world. For you. It's terrifying. For you. Let me just... I want to just say something. I am not a believer in in marriage or anything like that Aww. from my personal point of view. Aww. But I've known Matt for a very, very, very long time now. Um, we're old. And we've, for a while, we've actually been saying we're a little married and things like that. Like, we've, we've been very good friends uh, for a very long time. Not to say that Steve is not a very good friend of mine. 
but I'll just sit here I have and to do say, my thing. Uh, I, this is one of the happiest things vicariously I get to experience because uh, you finally found someone that's good for you. Thank you. Dog. Because I've been there during some bad times. You and have. I'm so happy you found someone that's good for you. Daw. Thank you. Digital audio workstation. Daw. I'm staring at Steve. Anyway, um, back to Steampunk World's Fair. I am going to put up an article this week, though, about the four bands that were intermingled with members because I think that their dynamic bleeds over really well. Especially you guys. I mean, you guys have heard Painless Parker and you've heard The Wasties. And I've and, heard uh, Rose West. Uh, Rose West was not there. Not Rose West. Um, no, yeah, Rose West. Well, Rose West has Alex and Robert, but they were actually yeah. not performing this year because their bassist, they're, they still are MIA on a bassist. Um, but, uh, Find but a bunch of the members of the Wasties are in Eli August, and also one of the members of Baroque and Hungary is also in Eli August. Because Eli August in the abandoned buildings has like 10 people on stage if everyone shows up. But it's actually really awesome because they have a tuba player and a trumpet player and a standing bass and electric guitar, acoustic guitar, a banjo, drums, two mandolins. The worst. Yeah. I, uh, question because I can't remember the name. Who was the uh, artist that uh, St. Vincent used to work with, that everybody you uh, are in love with used to work with? David Byrne from The Talking Heads. Now, they don't have... Oh, no, of- I'm sorry. Actually, well... He- Worked with, I think the person you're talking about is Sufjan Stevens. That That's one. who I called that the, one. The um, the where farmer is the of line? artists. The 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 farmer the, of of, of, of artists. Many modern artists in in their own very unique. While genres. they don't have one of those, uh, just a variety of bands and the musical sounds that comes out of the Wasties and everyone they're associated with because between between them there's what like that's true. They do like seem to be somewhat seven, of a like different bands. They're somewhat of a centerpiece. Someone, yeah. yeah. And it kind of all comes back to the Wasties, but it's really it's really nice to know that there is a lot of distinction between their individual products, their separate from each other products, and their full conglomerate product. There's a lot of different uh, differences, but there's you still get a lot of the same same music. Sarah's and, individual work, no. Uh, yeah, and it, it does stand apart work. from like Rose yeah. West. Yeah, uh, Painless's stuff stands way apart from what Gnome does in the rest of the band. Right. I mean, it's it's actually kind of. Oh, wouldn't it be lovely if we can think of the Wasties as that Sufjan Stevens' parent band in, well, that's in five I'm, to that's ten years? That's why I'm years. making that uh, yeah. illusion. Um, it's well, kind of di- it's kind of different well, that way. Well, I mean, the, I I believe that Painless Parker has been performing much longer on his own as well as the Rose West. I think the Wasties came later because they were all friends. But I'm I'm but saying it's, it's a centerpiece. Yes, the, there's a lot of overlap with those bands. Do the members of the Wasties uh, together have have the clout? I suppose to call upon these this collective. They're, collect- they're not their collective members, but also their related members like the Broken Hungry and all these others. Well, well, yeah, I mean, all, it's mostly Eli August calling on everyone. Eli August... Oh, so he's step- really the parent. Okay. Well, he sort of. He, Sarah doesn't perform with the Eli August, Patty. but Eli August had a lot of connections, as, as I understand it, had a lot of co- connections with the Steampunk World's Fair and brought along the bands that he was associated with. So a lot of the band, Like, Robert, Molly, Alex, and Noam are now all in Eli August the Abandoned Buildings. Um, whereas Matt DeBlas of Baroque and Hungry is also in Eli August. Um, and then all the Wasties, you know, are in the band with Sarah. And then Painless performs on his own. So he he pulls everyone with him, and, and we've gotten invited back. I don't know. Uh, this is the second year the Wasties have been playing there. I don't know how many years Steampunk World's Fair has been going on. But this is the second year the Wasties have played there. And I've gone to all their performances last year and this year, and there's a different, definite growth in the audience's 
of all of the bands, which was nice to see. Um, and it's just a fun event for music because there are a lot of other bands too that I didn't get to see who were there. There's a band called Frenchie and the Punk and they kind of do a mix of punk rock and rock and roll but also kind of a lot of it's geared toward kids too and it's a stage show. That sounds like a band that never escaped 1971 or something. <laughs> just based on the name that's, alone. But that's before the punk movement. I mean... I know, but then they would have been using the word punk actually just as like punk kid back then. So Which, as someone who is a detriment to society. Yeah. As opposed to the musical underground movement. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little... Is this a difficult concept? No, no, but I'm a little offended by it. <laughs> what? Do you take punk that seriously that you cannot accept the I word used being to. used outside of its I genre? I used to, not anymore. All right, fine, fine. No, John gets to be that way. That's it. I take. I'm taking over classical. Classical. We can't use it in terms of like, oh, uh, the classical, uh, the classical Greeks, the classical Romans. Nope. It is just a genre. That's it. Can we use Taking the word, the word classic outside the frame of work of classic rock? Um, you have to pay me the rights that uh, you don't own. Well, he. I'll put in a patent tomorrow. You're not gonna be able. To I'm fairly certain he called it, and that's yeah. pretty much good enough nowadays. <laughs> Candy right. Crush. That is the modern equivalent no, no, of trademarking. No, no. Yes. King, the the company that made Candy Crush, uh-huh. is trying to trademark, trademark the word candy. candy. I know. Technically, no one owns that trademark, though. So, he can definitely trademark classical. <laughs> You'd really be surprised the amount of things that can be trademarked. I had no idea. It's it's We live in a very um, kind of selfish society. <laughs> or possessive. Possessive society. is a better word, I think. Yeah. Um, Wow, I lost my train of thought completely after that diatribe. We were talking about the that French was a punkers. Ve- <laughs> the French and the punk. Um, I like my diatribe. The though. other bands that were at the, the, the Steampunk, Steampunk World's Fair, yes. Yeah. There were there is a lot of music there. There's a lot of shops and vendors. There's a lot... Um, That's it. You know, it's, 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 an, it's a fun experience, especially if you're open to new experiences and nerdy experiences. It's a lot of fun to go to Steampunk World's Fair. I've enjoyed it both years that I've gone. Um, oh, that's what I want to tell Steve because I knew he'd appreciate it. Me and Sarah got tintype photos done. Professional tintypes. I don't even I'm know what that means. I'm not surprised by this. But they, like, they, it's handmade. You never heard of a tintype? That's a, um, like in the 1850s era of photography. Like, it went before, when it was actually more, a picture would be more effective when it was uh, superimposed on tin as opposed to film. Because oh. film had not really, you know, come out in the modern sense of it. Then I kind of know what that is. Yeah. I'm surprised you don't know what this is, considering that we're all Staten Islanders here, and I'm sure at some point all of us have taken a trip to the Alice Austin house uh, yeah. as a field trip. I was probably eight. Who was the time famous Staten Island photographer? Yes, I was probably In eight last time I was there, and my memory doesn't go back more than about three weeks. <laughs> we all know why. I'm the the equivalent <laughs> of a goldfish. <laughs> he gets to one side of the bowl and then gets back to the other side and goes, "Oh, the side of the bowl I've never been to before." Then swims in a circle. Oh, a side of the bowl well, I've never been to before. So every time I look in the uh, look at the end of the bowl, I'm like, "Oh, hi, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, you're a little bit weird." And then I turn around, and swim to the other side. Oh, hi, hi, how are you? How are you doing? You're a little bit weird. And then I turn around, and swim to the other side. Oh, hi, hi, how are you? We get it. They gave you're this not goldfish. Interrupting me, they gave this either. goldfish a podcast. Um, but yeah, we got tintype photos done, and they came out really good. Actually, um, they looked super old fashioned and fun, and it was just a fun experience to do, because I never had professional tintype mo- photos made. Photos were done by the Devil's Photography was the name of the company. That's really an awesome name too. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think that's enough about Steampunk World's Fair since I, I completely lost my train of thought. I think it is. And my engagement. Um, and I'm sure if Sarah's listening, which she usually does, I love you. Thank you for saying yes. Um, Digital audio workstation. Mo- moving on to... Is that how you're going to uh, express yeah, yeah, yeah. sweetness from that's now on? That's how he emotes you have, now. Always. Um, he emotes that way. So this week um, is my pick, and I decided to do something a little different. Um, the artist known as Neil Sisirga is best well known for best well known for yeah I guess that's best correct. known for best Take a known pick, for really you know yeah, best it could be either or well <laughs> known <laughs> either he he was um he was part of the group Lemon Demon who are famously known for the ultimate showdown of Ultimate Destiny, Destiny. good guys bad guys and explosions um he's also behind the Potter Puppet Pals which is also very well known on YouTube a lot of music in that as well he released a sort of solo record called Mouth Sounds. So Mouth Sounds is a mashup record where he took a handful of pop songs or popular in the sense of well-known as well as some just straight-up pop songs and mixed them together with sound bites, digital effects to create something new out of something that already existed using existing material to create brand new music or something original. I do have to say, going into this album, I was I was a little bit thrown off because I expected mouth sounds to be entirely of the mouth, which the first track would have you believe, considering he uses his mouth so prevalently. There's very little else going on in that track other than his mouth and maybe a little bit of background, I think, well, on not my, his not mouth. His keyboard, whatnot. Smash, smash Mouth's mouth. I know, but it sounded like his mouth at first, which is why I was thrown off, because I thought it was going to be just an album of like beatboxing. And it wasn't. No, it wasn't. This is actually Smash Mouth, which is like a running theme, a gag, as you will, throughout the album. So everyone knows the song All Star by Smash Mouth and how it got so popular so fast, it transformed Smash Mouth into a kind of post-punk kind of rock indie band into this pop giant that nobody cared about. Um, Did nobody, though? Did nobody? I guess enough people did, but nobody who had any taste did. Strike that. Reverse it. I liked them for a while. (laughs) <laughs> insinuating you don't now um, stand by your remarks well I've you? kind of I've evolved past them the first tra- the first track on the record is called Promenade Satellite Pictures at an Exhibition so the interesting thing about this is it's all vocal using the words some and body it's taken from from M- all Masorksky's uh, pictures at an exhibi- exhibition which goes back to like 1880 or something like that so it's a very common very stately theme and it's kind of twisted uh, that it's kind of twisting his stateliness with the with his d- dementia as it were because this this I have to say is is a fairly abrasive track yeah to um, start out to say the least the idea is he took Mostly just using sound bites of the word "some" and "body," sung by um, the lead singer of Smash Mouth, whose name I'm blanking on, but it'll come to me later, um, to recreate this. Is it a classical piece? No, oh, yeah. Okay, I wanted to make sure I'm using the right term. So it's a classical piece, but well, compl- late romantic, if we're being okay. technical. Oh well, he late owes romantic. you fifty cents either way. That's true. That's Thanks. true. I'll talk um, later. But he, it, he, oh, and hey now, I wrote these down on purpose. Some body and hey now, using just these vocalizations to create this classical piece. Well, he he also takes those words and throws them in the 
pretty much the right key to replicate. And the he distorts them, puts them higher, lower, som, faster, som, slower. Som, 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 like back and forth yeah. and up and down. Hey now, hey now, hey now. He's really, it, kind of, he's really kind of thickening it out. He's making it almost a little bit more complex than the original melody was. Because but, the original melody never had this, 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 this stacking monstrosity on top of it. And he kind of, when you hear all this together, it sounds very busy. Which kind of lends to why it can also sound abrasive. Yeah. But it, it is recognizable. That's that's the big oh, thing. Oh, it's very recognizable, easily which recognizable. Is, which is, I mean, it's a, somewhat of an iconic piece being redesigned. Um, I mean, not really in this generation, but in our generation, the nearly 30s to over. Uh, it's it pan-generational, is yeah, one of those pieces. It is recognizable, and it, it's, it's, it took me more than one listen to, though, to really recognize it. It was, I, I was just really thinking about the wicked distortion that he's throwing in everything, and the fact that I really, after the first sum, like, I can't get Smash Mouth out of my head. Well, it's because on top of those mouth sounds there, we also get quite a bit of phasing in the background. It, it's, it's, as I said, And there's a ton of distortion, busy. too, and it gets really loud and really low. And it kind of wore on, and kind of got annoying, and... And it doesn't sound like we're building a very positive picture of this piece so far. Yeah, but, I, it was it was it it was kind of smart in its way. It was fun at first, but it really did wear on me very quickly. I gotta say, as an album opener, this was this was um, considering what I thought going in again, thinking that it was actually mouth sounds. Uh, yeah, this wasn't a very positive opening track. I didn't know, of course, what I was going to get later on the album. So, I didn't know the extent of the of the mashup quality here. For me, it was I was entertained by it. I didn't think it was necessarily pleasant at all times, but I was entertained. What really entertains me, and it sounds like from what we were talking about offline, what entertained John is moving on to the natural transition that this track has right into the second track which is called Modest Mouth. I wanted to make sure I pronounce it properly. Um, yeah, this, this it, album is just full of puns. So this is a mashup of Float On by Modest Mouse and All Star by Smash Mouth. It's the music from, for the most part, with some mixing, but it's the most, for the most part, the music of Float On with the lyrics and vocals redundant. Well, this is and what I would probably over, call his... This is what I would call his standard format. Of all star. I think. Oh, right. Yeah. And I think that is his standard format. His standard format is to take is to take two tracks, and he doesn't do this in every single track in the album, but the vast majority he does. He takes two tracks, and he usually takes the the backbeat or or the or the the driving figuration of one track, and kind of omit the lyrics there, except perhaps with, you know, flourishes and choruses and whatnot. But the primary lyrics are taken from the other track. Yes. That's generally what he does, and this is kind of the first instance where you get that format. It's a carefree, almost predictable mashup technique, but I was at least enjoying this track compared to the previous. I was really enjoying this track. This is one of my favorite, not my favorite, but one of my favorite Modest Mouse tracks. It's one of the most popular Modest Mouse yeah. tracks. What, what, is... what amused me the most is, though, so we got a lot of psalms in the first track. This track starts with psalm. Then Float On kicks in, and then after a few beats, 
it the actual singing starts with body told me and then it's the all-star lyrics and yeah, i thought i was... kind of get the hint like ah, okay i see what he's doing here yeah it was it was very good use of spacing spacing and, it really and... was he's starting to show that he can really manipulate tracks more than just you know bit by bit bite by bite um I think... but in that case it was it was a weird turn for me because modest mouths float on is a very reflective track and to have all star as a very reflective track it lost a little bit of its oomph and especially in the choruses for me and it kind of threw me for a loop because of that it, it lost a lot of its power I, I i wasn't quite feeling it the verses were great but the choruses not so much i definitely got that from a musical perspective although it's funny because from a uh from a theme perspective um, even though it seems almost a little silly to, to reference theme on a mashup album, that you have to wonder about his choices here. You have to wonder why he chose uh, these pieces and decided they would be a good blend. And at least as far as the second track is concerned, I, I think this really works in terms of the lyrics of Float On being, you know, don't worry, we'll all float on. It's just a very kind of relaxed, sit back, things will turn out well, while the lyrics to All Star are very rejuvenating and not I'll... necessarily relaxed but at the same time it's also a things will be okay kind of track if you just you know work hard be an all-star to kind of get go your f- game on yeah exactly go play <laughs> but what i really also <laughs> like to avoid that <laughs> what i really like and like yet you're the one who let us into it yeah I did. um what i also really like is towards about the halfway mark of the track i believe it was they start around as well and yeah, they do was... it in a way that it follows itself very well. It's it's mixed very well that you don't feel overwhelmed and it's not a lot of noise. It's... I was I was really smiling by that part. Yeah. I really enjoyed the way. And they that did was ma- and they did mix it a little bit of modest mouth vocals. Uh, we all float on okay does come up. And that was a nitpicky part for me, and that is for a much different reason. And this is where I think uh, the mixing is starting to break down a little, uh, because you have the the. Uh, We'll all float on, all right, all right. That part, I love that part. That's the chorus, that's the anthem of Modest Mouse. But the the iconic whistling from All Star is really just thrown on top of it and drowning it out. That, I think, should have been reversed. I think you should have had that nice low-key whistling in the background and really th- uh, you know, pushed out there the Modest Mouse aspect. I think it would have really, really hooked me right there if that had been that way. It's a fair point. I think, you know, what's one thing about mashup albums is you always can kind of imagine different ways to do it because there are an infinite number of ways to do it. I mean, once you have your your framework, you could really play around with it to your heart's content. Sometimes you're a little more constricted than others, but at least I think here he found a framework that at least worked on 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 a on a primal level just because both are so uplifting. And you know, again, as a second track, it it, it serves it serves as a positive place for a for a carefree comedy album, which is how I was trying to take this initially. Even the first track, I granted, I said it was abrasive and whatnot, but, but no, uh, I do get the comedy. Well, the I point do get is, the it's point. supposed to be ridiculous to drive you nuts. Right. So for sure, I wasn't really expecting anything, um, any, anything, uh, I guess, drastically serious or drastically. Uh, how would I put it? Socially impactful. <laughs> Maybe that's the way to put it. I, 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 I wasn't get, really getting any of that from Modest Mouth. Well, no, Modest Mouth was lighthearted, but it wasn't comedy. It was just a lighthearted, fun mix. Right. But comedy comes in more in track three. But okay. we're still not very lighthearted. 
next series. Yeah, Even yeah. the comedy, granted, the comedy like steps it up, but the lighthearted yeah. mix doesn't no, of leave course, at all. Oh no, of course. Yeah. So track three is called Doe, famously quoted by Homer J. Simpson, and the thing about this mashup for me is it it got me it gave me the giggles because it hit me on a primal level that it wasn't an intelligent joke the joke is here for those who have yet yet to listen although we recommend you listen before we discuss it especially with this record um he mashes up ants marching by dave matthews and his band but each beat for ants marching he mixes in a doe by homer at different pitches I gotta say something about this track is shameless, utterly shameless. And I think, considering the the framework of the album here again, if you take a step back, obviously here at track three you just think, okay, he's doing something different now. But if you take a step back, he's really stepping out of the for, out of the format to play around with a lot more than just two tracks. He's playing around with various sound bites, as you said, the Dave Matthews thing, the Sir Mixlot thing, the Doze, and then later on we get the Talking Heads, the uh, uh, Once in a Lifetime song. You know, you may find yourself in a beautiful house. You may ask yourself, how did I get here? On top of that, we also get the commonly quoted soundbite from Austin Powers. Yeah, yeah baby. baby. It starts it's, with that. It's a lot. Yeah. It's really a lot. This is just mashup, you know, squared, cubed, however you want to see it. This is, this is, this is OD. He's using the different tracks and the different aspects as instruments, as opposed to just, you know, taking A, taking B, and making them work. Yeah. It's a, it shows a lot more ambition at the same time... No, I think it shows playfulness. I think it shows I'm just going to sit here and have fun with this. But I... No, I'm going to... It could have even been... Still improv- says it's more ambitious. It's definitely more ambitious. It could have been more everything. improvisational, but, too. Mm, I, that I'm going to refute because of the way some of those sound bites were being used. Well, you it can definitely just, seems to be a lot more methodical. You can drop Yeah Baby wherever you want. The only thing he does with that is I think he, he stretches it out. He changes the tone of it. He makes it really low at some points and draws it out. No. Yeah. That's his demented quality. The, 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 the phasing of uh, the different songs, I, I think it was a lot more methodical. I don't think it was playful or just a remix or something like that. That's funny it you see it like that it, way. It seems like it, it actually was thought out when well, he would do the switching from A to B to C. Of course it's thought out in some respect, but I think in terms of many of the things in the album here, I think this is one of the most carefree, the most playful. Uh, I think he's putting all these playful songs really up front, because we do get some substantial uh uh form you know later yeah it's it's ad hoc but but still has a lot of thought in it well the idea the pure idea of this track was clearly comedy it was just to take quotes and ridiculous songs and put them together i mean the fact that they keep uh the, the repeated line from Sir Mix-a-Lot is just butts and i cannot lie Butts and I cannot lie. Focusing on the very crux of that chorus, so not my, even the whole thing. My point, you just they, there's really only one soundbite to work with here, yeah. so that's why it's got to be ad hoc because you know you can drop them anywhere you want. So that's why I really wasn't seeing the 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 method here, but it's still enjoyable. But it's still very lighthearted, very carefree. It just seems like someone having fun at the computer. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like this song at and all. See, it's so ironic. You come in first. You're saying that you know it's it's methodical, and yet you didn't enjoy no, I didn't, its method. I just I really, I guess, I just didn't like the way everything was mashed up together in this instance. I, I mean, was I'm, completely I, entertained I'm, by it. 
I I, thought it was funny. This is the point in the album, though, where I was still in in a phase where I was like, okay, it's it's a mashup for the sake of mashup. I was I was still looking for some other things, you know, an interesting twist on on two well chosen songs that really found their their marriage together. And again, I reiterate, we're going to get this later. I just wasn't having it quite here. You know, it was it was hard for me to enjoy this on a on a purely carefree level. Because I could always just go to the separate tracks. You were being, well, that was a personal taste thing. I think you were being a little overly analytical and you wanted more. Whereas me, I was ah, it's it's Homer and that's all I needed for this at that moment. Yeah, see that's, no, when it comes from, for a comedy album, you know, even going back with our discussion um, on The Lonely Island, you know, there's always, the poignant is what I'm looking for. Not, I'm not trying to be an analytical here, but some kind of punchline. I know, but I'm also basing on a previous experience with both the Potter Puppet Pals and Ultimate Charm of the Ultimate Destiny. All of their... All, but not that, all, that was one track and one short. That's, that's a that's good... Not that's not true. A good he had dozens of shorts. Oh, there were dozens of shorts. And but he that's, had three that's, albums under Lemon Demon. But... Well, granted, Lemon, Lemon Demon, but at least in, in, in the Potter Puppet Pals, those are separate individual shorts. You can take one, you know, individually and say, okay, that was a nice, silly experience. I, I, I suppose you could look at this at the same way. I just, again, I, I was at that phase where I wanted something a little bit more. You wanted more. Yeah. You were left wanting. Yes. I was wanted. Well, let's it, see no. what you want. Anyone want some wonton? No. Uh-huh. No. I want vivid memories that turn to fantasies. Wow. Now that's one thing more. Mm. That, that's the so thing. Vivid Memories Turn to Fantasies is actually a quote from Men in Black, the song by Will Smith. <coughs> and this ne- next mashup, excuse me, was a complete mashup and remix of Men in Black. Not even using the entire song, but just moments in it and parts of it. Um, this is where it starts to get interesting. Yes, it was. It <coughs> starts. Yeah, it starts. It's got a lot more going for it, and it was it turned that that Will Smith song that was you know after the credits and everything like that into like a real dance song, a real club song. Um, but I could not recognize it from Men in Black. Like I feel like it lost the core of the original song. I disagree. I could hear the backbeat. That was ingrained in my memory. I remember that every every piece of that movie from 1999, I still have the VHS, which featured uh, his music video at the very end. Um, right before that really, really awesome sequence where he, everything zooms out and the, mm-hmm. the whole entire universe is just a marble that's being played with by aliens. Yeah. Love that. Anyway, it, it, it really went hand in hand with that, which is why it's ingrained in my memory. So yes, all I need is a few quotes from the song, obviously sung by Will Smith, and I'm placed immediately right back there. So there was no problem with right me. I'm right there with Steve also. I recognized Men in Black. I didn't recognize the song in this. And I'm That's telling, the song. That's and I'm, I'm telling about. you. No, no. I'm, but I'm telling you it was there in the backbeat and the rhythm if you looked for it. You don't remember the song as well as you think you do. I watched the song and compared it. I mean, I didn't I didn't find it. That's that's what I'm saying here. Then I don't know what you're not hearing because I heard it. I heard the connecting backbeat, the rhythm. Well, whether we heard it or not, I suppose it's irrelevant as to what he's actually doing with this. It was in interesting mashup and again i guess this is a little bit step out of the framework for actually just playing with one particular track here there's no mashup as far as i could tell here with anything else it's really just playing around with the backbeats of of this um this men in black track (laughs) uh barring the the very odd insert shall we do this together sure 
Bees. Wait, wait, wait. Bees. Bees. And he would, he would say that. Will Smith would say that, and then there would be buzzing, and I wouldn't understand. Like, where's that coming from? That wasn't in the movie. It was right. Well, there funny. was that bug in the beginning, but that and was not a bee. By dumbass accident, actually, Steve came across while trying to find where that be- that quote is from. That him saying bees. He found the video for this posted on YouTube by Mr. Sasirga. And it's just a photo of the scene where they first hit Turbo in Men in Black and Will Smith is screaming when they zoom in on his face and his mouth's open with the word bees in his mouth. It's the only image in this whole YouTube video of this very song. And for the life of me, I cannot I, I cannot recall an instance of Will Smith saying bees. bees. If there's a person out there who knows the origin of this particular quote, please do post it in the comments. I would love to know because there's something just inherently comedic about Will Smith yelling out bees. bees. Yeah, it was very funny. So, it's on cl- the clearly you know what it is. <laughs> it's on the same level as um, Nicholas Cage going, "Not the bees." That's what I thought bees. of. That's exactly what I thought of Me when too. I when I was at Me this. Too. I mean, not the bees. Anyway, the song itself. Uh, yeah, this is not really going a far uh, cry from a critique at the moment. I, I really, really was impressed by the mixing and distortion work, and not just the distortion, but the use of it. The 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 playing around with the line "Men in Black," with with the way he was changing up the the tempo work, the way he was adding and subtracting layers. I really was enjoying it for that aspect. It was a pretty. It, it turned out to be a really good club song i'll admit that with uh the piano in here the build-ups there were some pretty clever things done this is definitely the track where i started to appreciate what he's doing a little bit but i still am going to withhold my my finer analytical points on this album from this track just because i still think here four tracks in i'm i'm not i'm not seeing the substance yet it's a cool thing he's doing i was definitely more entertained by this point than i was in the previous tracks and that's definitely a plus of course in in terms of a, a comedy album if i'm going to interpret it as such um which i, I assume most of us would go into anything neil sasurga is doing as, as comedy as comedy yes. okay um granted he's still a good a good uh mixer good layer layerer producer producer there you are but incorporates layering doesn't it doesn't it Bees. Yeah, I guess that's really all I got to take away from this. <laughs> Me too. I mean, my notes it's, it's are a... literally bees, funny, really well mixed. And that pretty much sums up the entire song. Yeah, so I'll be fair here. At least at this point, I'm not really trying to be analytical. I'm, I'm really not. I'm, I did, was not going into these four tracks try, attempting to, to find anything of, of uh, you know, strong, strategic musical value that will last the test of time it's just really really quirky and and a uh flavor of the month or the minute or however you will now we go into another very odd one bills like gene spirit so this is a mashup obviously by the title of billy Jean by michael jackson and smells like teen spirit by nirvana um bills. I, my my issue with this song is i think unique in the fact that it's actually the opposite problem that Steve had. So this album, it takes pretty much an even measuring of Teen Spirit and and Billie Jean over each other, almost in a continuous cycle. It's not like you mix part of it here and part of it there. Both songs are almost running completely over each other, with the vocals also in parts running over each other. The verses are... Mostly Billie Jean with a little bit of Teen Spirit, and then it kind of flips in the choruses where you get a heavier guitar and more Teen Spirit. Um, 
I liked the way the verses mixed. I thought they did a really good job of using the effects from Billie Jean with some of the great riffs and beat from, from Teen Spirit. But then moving on into the chorus, the chorus is where I get jarred. Because you bring in the heavy guitar of the chorus in Teen Spirit, and it kind of drowns out everything else. I feel like it unsinks also how the chorus is going. I'm on the same chapter as Matt on this one. I got I, I have different reasons to be upset with the chorus. And that is because, while the verses were primarily uh, Kurt Cobain's vocal work, you, you really don't hear much of Jackson in the background. Um, and there is a heavy fusion of the, the music from both songs. In the chorus, you have both singers, both songs playing at the same time, really, really drowned out Michael Jackson. And it's kind of distorted in the background, and it really upset me. That was in the chorus, though, wasn't it? That was in the chorus. That's the chorus. And that's what really upset me, is you had the potential to really change up the song and give Michael the part, or Kurt the part. But he doesn't do that. He tries to give them both, and I don't like it when he's putting both singing at the same time. You could do that with music. You could do that with the actual instruments. You can Obviously, you can fuse them together very easily. But when you have two singers in such different keys, such different styles working, and singing two different songs, it just doesn't work for me. I'm at a very strange medium with this song. I mean, at least my experience with it from, from the second it started, I'm getting that, that oh moment, you know, whereas I, if, I, if I read the title and it didn't quite give it away at that moment, Bill's like Gene Spirit, then of course the second, it actually, uh, you, you get the groove, and then the second you hear, um, you hear, uh, uh, what, what's his face? Um, Kurt, Cobain. Kurt Cobain, of course. The second you hear his voice, it's like, okay, I think I see where this is going. But the meat of the song, I mean, the groove, again, this is the standard format here. The groove really is Billie Jean. The singing is, is, is uh, Teen Spirit. And I definitely detected some moments where the notes might have clashed. And for me, that was the verse. I'm sorry. For me, the verses, granted, they were interesting and they had their dark twist. And, you know, in this case... It's almost blending in the same way that track two blended, in a, in a positive, relaxing way. This track blends by finding two tracks, which are also kind of dark in their respective way, I guess you could say. Uh, very respective. But, um, I don't know. The second then it went back to the chorus, it seemed so... I wasn't so focused on, on the key change and the chordal changes because Kurt Cobain wasn't really singing anything particularly in a key that was recognizable. You kind of just hear him screaming, which feels like it could t cater to any kind of backbeat, which is why I seem to accept it more in the choruses. Granted, you still have uh, Michael Jackson in the background there, but only briefly, and then they withdraw the voice, and it seemed fine to me after that. But then I twist it back around and say that this chorus kind of lasted a little bit too long, and Matt pointed out, well, even the original Teen Spirit kind of lasted a little bit too long in terms of the chorus just fading into this, well, not fading at all, but just droning on into this giant outro, and that's exactly what, uh, what Sisirga here perpetuated. And just another thing, and this is really selfish and personal, I've always found that Smells Like Teen Spirit remixes and mashups of which there are a lot of oh yeah work best when they keep the music and drop kurt it's just 
it just seems to work best. Oh. Uh, well, one of my favorites is uh, Smells Like Rick Rolled, which is just, I, I love that mashup. I love that. And I've heard a lot of others, even Weird Al did his own version of it where he just took oh, yeah, it. smells like, like Nirvana and makes fun of how you can't understand anything Nirvana's saying. And it's, it's <laughs> great the because of that. Point, uh... Smells like Teen Spirit has, has a great iconic grunge sound to it. But Nirvana just wasn't very good lyricists. In well, my I mean, I'd be the first to say that I thought Nirvana was completely overrated, and I'm still not really a huge fan of theirs. I like some of their stuff, but... I'm with you. I'm bigger on Foo Fighters, and I'm, I enjoy... Um, yeah. I enjoy um, uh, Dave Grohl as a uh, jack-of-all-trades, kind of plays every instrument, can do anything. Speaking of Dave Grohl, minor aside, apparently he might be getting his own TV show after the documentary he did about um, um, Sound City, huh. where he produces music and helps bands produce music. That would be interesting. Yeah. That would be unprecedented. That would be different. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Overall, this track, I just didn't feel... The, the mashup wasn't funny enough that I was like, alright, well, it's a little meh, but uh, it's making me laugh. It was just something that was trying to be interesting and it didn't grab me completely. There was one thing that made me laugh, and that was the scream itself. Oh, because yeah, obviously Kurt Cobain has a very identifiable scream. It's a, uh, it, it's abrasive. It's naturally abrasive, yeah. and I'm not saying and this... It's meant to be. It's exactly. absolutely meant to be abrasive. And uh, I think this was a little... I mean, considering that the natural voice, and this is without any any vocal editing whatsoever on, on Sisirga's part, so I'm not using bra- abrasive in the same sense as the first track, where it was abrasive based on what Sisirga did, here just the natural residence of Kurt Cobain's voice is just really abrasive. You hear him screaming exactly as he does at the end of Smells Like Teen Spirit, and all Sisirga's doing is just repeating it. That's really all. He's not doing anything in terms of vocal he's editing even, except taking that one soundbite and repeating it over and over and over and over re- and over, and then he holds it for yeah, the very Yeah, that's exactly. He repeats note. it, and then, yeah, he holds that note and extends it, which was the coolest and most disconcerting part of the song. But what's unique about holding that is that it actually served purpose. It served a very good purpose. And this is where the comedy really stepped up for me, because this was... The first, but not the last, biggest face palm on this album. Because and from that abrasive note, just holding out Kurt Cobain, all of a sudden we are dropped right into Everywhere you look, everywhere. Which, the starts, house with, theme. which starts with a ah. So it's ah, going to ah. Yeah. And you know, and, and so we have, what, what track is this? Six. Full it, Mouth. So, no shortage of puns on this album, Steve. You must be loving that. It's the same pun, though, over and over. <laughs> it's just Smash Mouth. Everything is mouth. Well, I get it. That was the whole album. The whole the album was the same damn pun. So, this is Full Mouth. And the, the thing I like about the Full House theme mashup with All Star is that it's, the, it's obviously the music. The music is the Full House theme. But the Full House theme progresses pretty standardly. It's about 30 seconds long. It goes through movements. It's glitterly. It's it, it's uplifting. It's this whole but 90s this ver- fest of early this sitcom version happiness. that he's using, he's looping the first half of the theme over and over again. And you're like, okay, I get it. And it, until the point where you're going, almost going, okay, I get it. Please stop looping. Oh my God, do something. And that's when the lyrics but That was in. the joke to it's, me. It's yeah. funny how in this particular instance, I wasn't feeling it like in the in like in the last track where it's like, okay, that's enough uh, Kurt Cobain. Oh in no, this I case, wasn't. I was actually really accepting like, you know what? I, I could maybe take another Full House theme because it, it 
there's I, an inherent joke there. I wasn't no, being it, it bothered was, by it. It was the idea that it was the inherent joke was that he looped it too long because he was going for that. Like, where is this going? What are you doing? Well, this kind of oh, carefree state of bliss. Yeah. Like, no one expects to sit in the Full House theme for any longer than the actual theme exists, which is yeah. pretty damn short. And then all of a sudden here, you have to kind of kind of swim in it for a while. And it's, I guess, to some people, they might consider it disconcerting to swim in something that is so overtly carefree and happy. Well, the intentional loop makes you anxious. It, it does. It does make you want to progress. It makes you hopeful for what you're getting into. Well, and this is what it's, I... it's, he's coming back around. I mean, uh, one one of my favorite uh, folk singers or folk storytellers, Arlo Guthrie. At one point in his song Alice's Restaurant, he's telling the story, and he and he he's it's the very end. He's like, "All right, everybody, come sing along with me." And he's playing the guitar, and he's like, wait, 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 wait. We gotta let it come around again. So he actually just sits there and plays it for like another 25, 30 seconds just to get back to the beginning part of his his chords. And it's that kind of a joke. It's a punchline unto itself. I think it's and more I than like that, it though. It's also just the full house theme itself. Think about what he's looping here. I feel like the full house theme has become somewhat of a joke or, or, or a trope in, in this day and age now because... It's it's weird how we're looking back at this at this sitcom and how it was so bubbly and bubblegum to the same way that people even back then were viewing like Wally and the Beaver back in the 50s. It's like this is really really that full house has become the 90s Wally and the Beaver. I can totally see that. And I mean it's it's almost a little sad that people see this kind of very it was a, it was an enjoyable sitcom. It's not a sitcom I that I would it. you know, it wasn't like top of the line, but it Cut was Cut it out. Oh, it's, it's mostly Uncle Joey that that makes it so hacky. He did do pep. He did do Popeye. Yeah, and I gotta say, Coulier. I gotta say, seeing those scenes of San Francisco and then like the staircase houses about it's it's very it, bu- it makes me feel bubbly. Yes, wholesome. Wholesome is the word, and I think it's kind of sad that that uh, present day society is viewing this with such malice. <laughs> but what I really liked about this song is when All Star does kick in. He slows down Smash Mouth, makes it stay in step with the beat, and he doesn't miss a beat. It it fits so perfectly the way he slows it down and sticks it in. It just... It, slows it, it down, if, sticks it in, yeah. If Modest Mouth... I was mouth, hoping you'd miss that. <laughs> if, if Modest Mouth was reflective, this one was hopeful. Yeah. Hopeful and joyous. Like... Um. I'm these gonna are, refute are... that a little bit. No, it's like no the... only in one only in one area, and this is toward the end of the track because this is where the uh, the all star lyrics start layering one on top of the other it to goes form into this a round, round yeah. exactly. And I guess I don't have to explain what a round is. Everyone here knows what yes. a round is. Everyone yes. has probably sung "Row, row, row your boat" at some point. So obviously, I I I think it's kind of an odd choice to use to use these all-star lyrics as a round because I'm not sure it, it winds up so... You don't get that same synergy that you get from, let's say, Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Instead, it, it, it's very jumbled. And the jumbledness has goes back to that kind of slightly demented quality that he seems to be yeah, gradually peppering throughout this album. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. That's why it, I can't interpret the entire track as just so glittery. It seems like there's a, a smidgen of irony in here. He's well, using the backdrop, the very carefree backdrop of the Full House theme to kind of create this this awkwardness. I think that actually is 
perfect for it, though. Just from the point of view of Bob Saget's character. Oh, sure. I mean, he was the bumbling, smart, but altruistic, kind of out there dad. And it, it, it speaks to his character itself. Wait, are you trying to tell me that, that someone, someone from the internet who's made a career on trolling people is trying to troll us in this album? Yeah, he's kind of doing that right here. I, I think, think I think it just comes down to the fact that, I mean, again, I hate to bring in this word because it doesn't seem like it has any place on an album like this, but theme-wise, it's very interesting to use the Full House, the Full House theme as this sort of staple of sensibility and wholesomeness while you're bounced against these other ideas. And in this case, you have the lyrics from All Star, which are very much like, you can make it, you can make it, you can make it, but it implies there's going to be kind of a rough road. And then you pit that that against the full house theme, which is gradually falling into this this demented loop, and it seems to commutatively imply that the road is not always so easy. So it's deep. You know what? I really don't think I'm reaching at this point. I really don't. And I, this is going to be supported by the time I get to this next track here. But 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 you just made a really nice deep metaphor thing. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah I, did, I did that. So you said, that in other words, you, your kind of problems that you seem to be having with this track are that it's just too deep. No, I'm not. This is not a problem at all. Oh, it's not a problem. Not a problem. Fra- from my, from my point of view, you were phrasing it as a problem. No, I w- no, I was phrasing it as a problem because I was disagreeing with you. Because <laughs> you seem to see it as, as a little more glittery that, than I saw it. No, 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 no. I definitely see what you're talking about. Um, I don't know if I would actually go as far as you, and this is me saying that. Uh, yes, this is you saying that. But I could definitely see where you're coming from here. But I think you're going to be a little more behind me as I go into this next track here. Track seven, Alanis. Alanis. Alanis, sorry. sorry. Alanis Morissette. Alanis Morissette, of course. But of course, it's Alanis. I, I say Alanis. I'm a little conflicted on this track. Or at least I started out conflicted on this track. I don't think I'm conflicted anymore. I think I know exactly what I'm going to say here. First of all, there's no giveaways this time. We don't get the pun within the title. We just get Alanis. So we really don't know what the mashup is going to be. In other words, he doesn't give away the joke before the joke comes. So we start by simply hearing her voice. Begins The track here begins with the bridge of her big single, You Oughta Know. And then... When it drops into the chorus of the song, the chorus of You Ought to Know, it's the probably, I'm going to say, the biggest facepalm on the album because we are right back to the Full House theme again. Right back. And I'm going to try to explain why I think this is both odd and, and brilliant on the same exact plane. On one hand, and hear me out, I'm not convinced that this really works on a musical level. And yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that's the point of this track here. Sure, we're on the same time signature. It's 4-4, whoop de friggin do He found two songs in 4-4. But, in the Full House theme, we've got a little more chordal changes here, really. We actually have a, a driving, walking bass right on down the major scale, which is sort of paraphrased by the saxophone melody. It's so major, it is nauseating. It's this very air-free, carefree cheer, exactly what I talked about in the last track. Think of toddler age Mary-Kate and Ashley with smiles that could that could sign peace treaties, that kind of thing. And then we get Alanis, and her choruses are really more, I mean, granted, they are in major, but they're slower. They're more decisive chordal pivots in 
in the real track itself. And her melody actually accents those chords really, really closely. So even though these chords have been removed from this mashup, you're left with this powerful melody that everybody knows standing naked and displaced in this kind of shell. That said, that may be why this was more of the cleverer mashups on this album. Not because it works, but because it doesn't work at all, and that's the joke. Which is where we walk on over to lyrics. Because it pits the unfettered optimism that I just described of the Full House theme lyrics with the masked bitterness of Alanis's, Alanis's You Ought to Know. So just look at the Full House lyrics. I actually have them in front of me. Everywhere you look, everywhere you go, there's a heart. There's a heart, a hand to hold on to. When you're lost out there and you're all alone, a light is waiting to carry you home. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that so sweet? Huh? Yes. Yes. I'm looking for validation here. Okay, okay. yes. I don't know sweet. if we we're allowed to participate yet. Oh, you can, you can participate. But, well, actually, after this, though, there's the alternative. There's Alanis's lyrics from You Ought to Know. This is that masked bitterness that I was talking about. The lyrics here are actually about wishing your ex the best while you're really struggling to reconcile how easily feelings can just be written over like data on a hard drive. And so this kind of insanity follows, especially in the choruses themselves. I'm here to remind you of the mess you left when you went away. It's not fair to deny me of the cross I bear that you gave to me. You ought to know. It's a really creepy song. Consider it starts out as this, I want you to know that I'm happy for you. I wish you nothing but the best for you both. An older version of me, is she perverted like me? Would she go down on you in a theater? Does she speak eloquently? This insanity starts ensuing. And hearing that combined with the full house theme, which I just described from a musical level, doesn't fit at all. It, they're just polar opposites. It's just this juxtaposition for the sake of juxtaposition. I thought that was brilliant. My piece is said. And I, I don't want to debunk what you said. But I might be able to. I'm not saying that... Oh, go for it. I'm, Try. I'm not trying to debunk it as in it's wrong. Because you're probably very key on as why he did it. But there's also another reason why he probably did it. It's very well known that Alanis Morissette dated Dave Coulier. And one of the verses in You Ought to Know is actually about him. The verse that's featured is that verse. That supports what I said. Yeah, Actually, in every possible way. So, so it's part of why... The two songs were probably picked as well, I'm sure. It also does... I don't come into these tracks with pop culture knowledge. I come up with as, hard musical knowledge. As, well, as, I come with <laughs> pop culture knowledge. As per your own argument, it is probably one of the most vivid representation of a broken home as we've ever gotten. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. really sad and heart-wrenching, actually. Again, at, to see it against the Full House theme. At, at, but, but from my point of view... Um, it didn't work. But that's the idea. It didn't work. It didn't work. But this is one of the, see. This is the thing. It this did, is wait, one wait, of, wait, wait, wait. I'm trying to get this in English. I know it I kind of like threw work. a lot on you, right? No, 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 here, no, no, no. I'm saying from my point of view, it didn't not work enough. Meaning it worked too well to go to the full extent of what you're explaining, but. It really didn't work at all. That's very odd, considering I think that musical level, this is probably the least... It, it, it worked the least on the album, I think. Yes. I think there was that moment when, when she started singing along with the full... I mean, when, she, when her chorus stepped in with the full house theme, it was... It was awkward. I felt like I was, yes, I was I know, in the middle of I mean. an argument of a, in a broken house. 
No, that's that's about exactly what I mean. It yeah. really didn't work at all. Met putting them together. That's why it Yet works? I don't feel like it went for farther enough, far enough to really get into the depth of the nitty and gritty of no, what no. we're talking about. This is meta enough to work. It's the most meta thing on the album because every, that's how I would describe he's, every other track. Oh my god, he's making so many of my arguments today. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's right. And he's you're really. Wrong. You you're, now you're no, making my argument. You didn't think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just You I'm, just didn't think I'm about not... this song hard enough. That's it. But I don't think there's, an, there's as much to think about with the other tracks on this Here's album. Here's the whole thing. I this... was face palming at this point because it was Full House's theme again. And I was like, oh, come on. Fair enough. Fair enough. Come on. But I, I, I mean, I had to think. Of, you know, the real reason why I started thinking about this song a little more in depth than perhaps uh, many of the tracks in this album is because of the reason for repeating the Full House theme. The only other uh, case of repetition that we get here is the all-star theme, which is, again, the only other running theme in this album, that, you know, just just work hard and you'll make it and you'll make it. It's a very uplifting track in its own right, and it keeps popping up in all these other tracks, but this kind of had a little message in and of itself. Why would you put two tracks back-to-back with the Full House theme? Well, it's part of the joke as well. The idea that you escaped it from the first one, it's done repeating, you're like, yes, okay, what's next? Again? It's the same trolling theme that's been irritating John the entire night that Smash Mouth keeps right, coming I'm back. just posing that it's more than just not, trolling at this point. Yes. Not irritating, making me feel exasperated. Oh, and geez. part of that begins with the next track, Imagine All-Star People. <laughs> and the reason for that is while... I'm, I'm well, don't, not... for, don't forget the sign-off, though. We get, as a transition to this track, or maybe more as an interlude for everything, we get the sign-off production company. Uh, oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, you know, right, I forgot for, about For that. all the sitcoms. That, that was cool, and that made me laugh. Because you're sitting there, and it's literally just going... one sign-off after the other, and you're guessing which one it's from which show. That's, that's okay, that would have been Fox, that would have been NBC, that would have been WB before it became Well, there were for specific sitcoms in many instances. Some like, I, I, there was Not definitely well, the Seinfeld one, there was definitely the Simpsons one there. And uh, I think uh, specific there was a Nickelodeon. production companies. Right, exactly. Right, and, but the Fox one was there as well, the generic Fox. Oh, show. yeah, the 20th Century Fox, exactly. And again, I, I think that was I think that was nice as a conclusion to you're already having a sitcom theme there to begin with, so you conclude these episodes kind I'm, of just like wrap up all your sitcoms really quick. The story is over. I'm pretty sure they also included the more you know theme too. I'm not 100 percent sure on it. Yeah, I don't know. I can't uh, verify when that. I cannot confirm nor deny that. I had a teacher in high school anyway. every freaking day. We also had a actually, president who said that, that was actually kind of pointed in its own way if you really want to get into the depth and start from Steve's argument which has like I said some credence I think you do uh, it's it kind of just explains the whole lives that comes themselves yeah 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 that's totally I'm not gonna go any further than that I, I've said my piece I'm done obviously you've said your piece yeah so back to track imagine all star people this, so this is imagine by John Lennon Ma- the music mashed with a slowed down, slightly deeper version of All Star. Not even lyrics. Not oh boy, this was this. Uh, I'm sorry, but this in, in this particular case, we are right back to track one because it's almost the same exact vocal effect that he used in in track one here to except, uh, to except create all the promenade. Slow distortion, all right. slow distortion. Exactly, but of course, this time it's not. Yeah, that was all slow distortion. This is just his. The vocal track. The background, Imagine, is almost very spot on as it was with John Lennon's original Imagine. But again, we get those few bars where it's just Imagine and we don't know what's coming. And then he gets to drop the joke. The joke is, of course, we hear All Star again, which is part of the joke. And then the second is 
how he's singing it, which is, I mean, again, this is one of those clashing moments, and I don't have as much of a reason behind this as I did, let's say, in the last track, as opposed to simply just to provide a little bit of uh, vocal dynamics. I don't know. I have a reason. And right. that is because, and people will hate me for something like this, the Trummy. music of Imagine is really simplistic and not worth much in the grand scheme without the actual lyrics of it. Oh, yeah, it's a very just airy kind of ephemeral track. It's not... Uh... Well, it's extremely repetitive. It's Forgetting the fact that it's, for the most part, just one instrument, uh... The piano, one of the most versatile instruments in creation, is really being underutilized in the song itself. Granted. Um, it's all about the poetry that Lennon is, is spinning here. To have a slow, kind of dumb version sounding of of All-Star playing on it, it's not adding anything to it's not I got a very one. light, airy I got soundtrack. one, and I'm, I'm ripping this out of my ass. But I'm, I'm really going to stand by this one, though. I think uh, it's as simple as imagining a better world, which is what John Lennon wanted to do, and then imagining a better you, which is what Smash Mouth was trying to do in in All Star, and both of which are kind of highfalutin dreams that are kind of a joke in their own right because nothing is really talking about actual facts here. It's just these outlandish ideas. Hey, imagine this, imagine that. Well, none of that really does anything about the matter, which is why I think the joke steps in. Just kind of make it a whole derp. But... That's basically the whole song. That's how he sings it. But, yeah, that's that's the presentation doesn't really promote that. Somebody... That that kind of low... That is a derp, if I've ever seen one. Granted, but it actually belies your idea of the combination of the two imagines because it loses that actual pointed statement That's by exact- making it derpy, and it's it does no no. But no. I'm no, I'm actually saying like that is the joke. He's deep. It's no longer pointed. That it that is exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to diminish the pointed quality because really, when you think about it, not just John, John Lennon was not saying anything pointed. It was a nice dream. But it's not really grounded in reality. It's not grounded in facts. It's just imagine that you know the world will be yes, a nice, happy, peaceful hope. place, and that's it. But in this case, he's killing hope. You're both right. So what this song is doing is it's taking a song that's, let's be honest, average musically, and yeah. then putting average lyrics over it, making it, giving us this realization that it's actually quite an average song. However, in its imagery with these lyrics over that music, it is conveying this idea of a higher hope, combining those two sound, sounds together. Now, see, that's where I disagree. Is- I actually think that's the joke. I think he's trying to take away that and make it, make it a highfalutin dream. I just and I like- think that's a positive thing in the end because I was never really that big a fan of the original John Lennon Imagine. It's a dream. Yeah, it's hopeful. Great. But it, it, it was it's kind of a weak... It's beautiful Robert Frost-esque poetry. I would even... I, I would say that that insults Robert Frost. No, sweet and full of calories. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Granted, I love the song Imagine. But I love it because it's, it's well, sweet, I light, love airy. Well, I Road Less Traveled. <laughs> but, but the fact that... And I'll, I'll say it again. He's killing the idea of hoping. 
That's what he's saying. Hoping. I see to, that as more positive thing to, than you do. No, but it's he's saying it's derpy from your point of view. It's derpy to try to hope for a better world, a better you, a better whatever. That's it's. I don't like that. I do because all. it's. I I kind of think it's that's derpy good. to blindly hope. Bingo. For a better world. There's a difference between hoping and doing. And when you blindly hope and talk without any backup fact or decision making, that's what this is trying to convey. Bingo. That derpy, overly ideal, idealistic hope. Right. And it's not just from Imagine, but also from All-Star. All Star. It's not necessarily diminishing the original tracks. It's not like you can't be hopeful in that right. But his artistic spin on it is portraying the opposite side of the coin. And I think there's many songs here, using the uh, the tie-in of, of All-Star to all these different tracks here, where he's trying to kind of pit... And I, again, I really don't think I'm going out on a limb here. I think he's really attempting to pit the understood idea of of go get him be positive with cold harsh reality and I think that's really kind of cool. I will concede that one. I will concede to that. Yeah. Yeah. I understand it. I don't like it. What? No, from a musical standpoint, from listening to this song, don't like it. From a musical standpoint, sure. I I I I agree with you and and I don't think it's going to, you know, change worlds. But then again, I think people overemphasize the original John Lennon Imagine. I, I agree with Matt. I think it was a very average song, kind of lackluster, and yet people hold it, held it on such a pedestal, not just because it's John Lennon, but because he was kind of that essence of the 60s at the time, and it, was it got mostly, a little redundant. It, it really did. Mostly because it was John Lennon. Yeah. It, that's why it was as big as it yeah. was. I mean, we were just talking about Kurt Cobain and how people thought he was the best thing since the second coming, but he wasn't. He was actually not a great musician. Dave Grohl was a great musician. Kurt Cobain was just okay, but they put him up on a pedestal. Yeah. So I, wonder, I don't I think just, it's... I, I just want to be clear here. I don't think that, that uh, Neil Sasirga is like all out dissing these artists at yes. all. It's definitely an homage, but it's an artistic twist on and an, an alternate point of view. Awareness. awareness, too. Um, moving forward, through though we get some more Beatles with our mashup. This is I'ma Let It Be. This is a mashup of Let It Be by the Beatles and I'ma Be, which is not to be confused with Bees. <laughs> this is just I'ma Be by the Black Eyed Peas. Oh jeez. I wish that I was, was a Steve Love oh, right there. That was a Steve Love. So much pun. rhyming. Jeez. Um, <laughs> jeez. This was Please. <laughs> oh Stop! Uh, <laughs> I'm breaking the cycle. This was oh. very much a Killer. once again uh, uh, same idea of just splicing one into the next until until he switched it up to the dance transition and really used a lot more of the peas, uh, higher rhythms, faster beat, everything like that. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I don't understand why <laughs> you're laughing. Because when you said peas, we both heard peas. <laughs> oh, God. I'm watching with children tonight. I might have some editing fun. <laughs> <laughs> I already know what Steve's planning, and that amuses me on every level. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I can't even get. I can't even get that. I know. Someone else take over. Okay, so no, I'm gonna be. I, I'll I'll agree with you from from 
I don't think he's doing a lot here in terms of, I'll, I'll take off, I'll, I'll lower my theme high horse at this point. I think at least at this point, we get a little more musicality, but only on a dance floor perspective. But then again, that's not really from Cicerga himself, that's really from the original Black Eyed Peas' I'm a B track, which in the second half really starts getting kind of funky, like, it moves. Granted, I'm not a big fan of this track. I don't think there's a lot to be taken here from the, from the lyrics. I think the lyrics are fairly meaningless, and it was actually kind of odd to hear it linked with Let It Be, because this time I don't, I don't, have, any, I don't have anything to rip out of my ass here. Just, just for anyone who doesn't know the song I'm a B, let's just take a few lyrics here. I'm a B on the next level. I'm a B rocking that bass treble. I'm a B chilling with my motherfucking crew. I'm going to be making all them deals you want to do. I'm going to be up in an A-list flicks, doing one-handed flips. I'm going to be sipping on drinks because I'm going to be shaking my hips. You're going to be licking your lips. I'm going to be taking them pics. You all fly and shit, that kind of thing. I have something to pull out of my butt. Oh, boy. Uh, boy, oh, boy. Let It Be is all about kind of this letting go, this not not really anti-aggression. Whereas I'm be is very aggressive. And very in your face, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this. Passivity versus aggression. And I think that's why these two songs are mixed together. This song itself is the definition of passive-aggressive. Yep. At the same time, uh, overlaying uh, Paul with whoever was singing it at any given time, because it keeps going around and around, didn't really work. I was straining to not hear the Beatles singing. Just so that I could hear Black Eyed Peas singing, because it was just got it got really cluttered at parts. I just couldn't make heads or tails on a lot of the stuff. That was my big issue with this song. That and really the first half was kind of mad because it was, while it was let it be almost completely, there wasn't anything really being done to it that was you know provocative or innovative. Yeah, I thought it was just a fluke at first, but we were really on opposite opposite fields in this podcast you have been all music and i have been all theme and you yeah. realize this yeah this is kind of the way it's that's been okay. so far and yet i guess i really haven't really thought about the music too much at this point because i just know the music so well i mean it kind of speaks for itself i'm a b is i'm a b and let it be is let it be and together they are just together and passive <laughs> not very um i didn't want to really First it's passive, then it's aggressive. That's why I use the term passive-aggressive. Don't get me wrong. You see I think... where I'm coming from there, though, right? Yeah, no, no, no. The uh, Theme-wise, I think I think that's that's pretty solid. I'm, I am actually starting to agree with it. Um, I want to say that... I, I, I do want to be a little nearer to the music, though, at this point, just because the, the change-ups near, near the end were getting pretty good. Uh, I agree that... Granted, even though a lot of it was uh, I'm a bee's work and not Cicerga's, <laughs> I think those jazzy quick changes were really, really cool jumping off point uh, from the dance floor electronica um, framework to, to jump off into Daft Punk, which we get in the very next track with Daft Mouth. Unless uh, anyone else has anything else to say about no. that. No, I want to talk about Daft Mouth. I want to talk about Daft Mouth. So yeah. My da- favorite. So Daft Mouth is not it. my favorite, but it's one of, I feel, the better mashups. And here's why. If you take two really strong tracks that work really well together, guess what? You get an even stronger track. So this is a mix of better, better, faster, 
harder, stronger. Better, harder, faster, stronger. No. Better. Harder, better, faster, stronger. Yeah, why did you start with better? I don't know. You harder, better, made. faster, stronger. Is There's only a few up. more permutations. We might as well say them all. It's mashed up with Walking on the Sun by Smash Mouth. Yay, new which, Smash song. Which is actually my favorite, one of my favorite Smash Mouth songs. These songs work really well in tandem together. Um, there's very minor editing beyond. There is some editing and remixing, but it's a lot of it is just layering the singing of Walking on the Sun over Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. Again, this is the standard format. The, the, the backbeat is, is always Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. And I do have to say, this was, However, this was a little bit of a guilty pleasure for me because Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger was started out as probably one of my favorite Daft Punk tracks, and that goes way back. Mine, mine just for reference, even though nobody asked, is One More Time. That caught on me, and then I went back and discovered their older stuff. Oh. Because it had an animated video that was very much an anime style that was familiar to me. So I went back and wanted to know more about them. This there was song, an anime cover, though, on me. Discovery, which had this track, though. Was the cover. Um, I'm going to pull another theme out of my ass. Walking on the Sun is about, I've started uh, is a, about a generation getting older, falling out of touch. And better, fa- a Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger is about a younger generation growing up. And learning the ropes and improving themselves. So degradation versus generation. Yeah, it's another dichotomy developing here. And and and, and because I'm just kind of ignoring hmm. theme on this whole album, I will say that it, there's a lot more editing and a lot more layering going on here than the two of you are actually giving credit uh, to. The the vocal work wasn't just straight played through. There was a lot of work in getting oh, no. the inflection and pacing I of the no, vocals. I would agree. Especially around, like, I up. mean, granted, it starts out slow. It starts out as the basic beat, but especially halfway through, the, he starts getting really, really creative with, with what is a fairly stable backbeat. He really, really plays around with it. And there's a lot of use of um, the actual music. Not a lot, but... Uh, some use of the actual music from Walking on the Sun. You're right. Used the, in this that really complemented when they bring in the bass. Daft's the, the original. A work. lot of the bass lines that they bring in really, really accentuated. And that it. that was my favorite part. Throwing in those little tidbits of Walking on the Sun, it really did a lot to enhance the original beat from Daft's work. And the my favorite part was this song started out strong and actually progressed to something better. Than its beginning, it got better as the song went along because he got extremely playful, and extremely uh, interesting in what he was doing. Well, I do think we we've been, um, especially as I've gone off my theme tangents, I do think we've been neglecting some some hard uh, discussion about about the quality of mashing music together of mashing beat work i again it does come down to choice in the end because some tracks offer more flexibility than others and i think the daft punk track here was an excellent choice because you're not seeing really a lot in terms of the the track itself it's kind of almost you know it's minimal there's not a lot going on there it was very powerful at the time and it's great on a dance floor because that's what daft punk always excelled at is is providing fairly minimal backbeats that would be just enough to really get you moving, but not so much that it would be full of clutter or anything. And that kind of provided a really good framework for what they did. And that's ideal for, for, for mixing because there's not a lot of chordal changes here. I think it's, again, just 
the the standard four chord progression which again you can kind of swap out you could sw switch around those four chords you could uh you know retrograde however however you want to spin it it could still sound very much like harder better faster stronger and then walking on the sun using just the lyrics there i mean it wasn't the lyrics, just the lyrics. No, no, it quite wasn't just the lyrics that's what i'm saying there was a lot of little interspersed uh, interspersed work from uh, Walking on the Sun that really did give it an extra little oomph, a, quite a bit of extra flavor as the song progressed. I mean, Daft Punk no, you're right. themselves, it was, I think it was more they the remix. It's, it's Electronica. They yeah. are very well known for remixing on the fly. Right. That's so what not, they do at their concerts. It's not like this is a slight to Daft Punk. <laughs> I, but it's, I mean, the songs themselves, I mean, even Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger has been used a lot by professional artists. In making music. Oh, yeah. Daft collaborates a lot, so it's not, you know, hard to hear this song being remixed. It comes down to a simple fact. I think they could have spun this any way you want. I'm not I'm not diminishing the creativity, but I think there were any number of ways to make this interesting, and, well, he's right on the money. It was interesting. It's impossible not to move to this track. Uh, mostly, I would argue, because of the Daft Punk backbeat, but the Walking on the Sun is not is not to be sneezed at. I think it was a very appropriate choice. That's all I have to say. This is an appropriate track. It was good, but it was Why good because... Why are you using that John word? It was good because it was appropriate. Yeah, no, I guess it is a John word. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm defending it this reason for, this time for some reason. I don't know. See, and while John said that this track was his favorite track, the next track might be one of my favorite tracks. I'm going to agree with you there. So this next track is called Like Tears in Chocolate Rain, and it starts with a what I'm assuming is a movie quote, though I don't know from which, that starts with a fairly elderly character saying, you know, a, um, a, a dialogue that comes to the end with, like tears in, and then chocolate rain starts, that deep voice. Chocolate rain. <laughs> um, but the difference is this time is Neil is really doing something unique and captivating. He took chocolate rain, put echo filter on it just to start. Just an echo filter over the voice that gave it a little more depth. But he also added a tiny electronic war warble that also gave it this interesting hollow effect. Well, let's just hone in on Chocolate Rain for a minute here. The origin of Chocolate Rain goes back somewhere to 2007, and I, I, wasn't, actually, I wasn't actually around for this initial outburst in which this track really became popularized in the early YouTubes here. But the guy is Day. And he released Chocolate Rain. I, I, he was an aspiring musician, I assume. He has, I think he's done a lot of vocal uh, voiceover work since because he obviously has a very unique voice. It kind of clashes with his appearance. Um, you know, you see this guy who looked fairly young in the original video with glasses and whatnot. And it seemed impossible to believe that this sort of booming, smooth voice could emit from him. So there's a hypnotizing quality to the voice itself, period. So again, the power of choice here. And the, combining that natural resonance with these sort of vocal phases that swell in and out, the volume swells, uh, later in the track, like toward the end, it actually fades into rain. There is a really, I don't think eerie is quite the word here, but there's a contemplative air about there's this track. a depth. There's a depth. Uh, that's, that's too broad. It, this is specifically contemplation. I feel like I'm sitting in the rain thinking about life itself or the state of the universe. Well, this is... 
This is this is a whole nother level. We are not on a comedy album anymore. This is not something to simply snicker at at the spectacle of. This is this is real. This is this is art within mashups. I I can't quite go that far to say about that about any of the previous tracks. Well, but I don't think they were supposed to be. Fair enough. Fair I'm enough. Pretty I'm sure just that... saying that this this really stands out on this album for that exact reason. Right, and I think it's Neil flexing his muscles and showing, hey, I can do a thing. Also. The dichotomy of comedy is, you know, very much shown through a serious moment. And this is a very serious moment. I mean, the song's lyrics are great to begin with. And then you take these echoes, these different filters, add it with layering effects and a, a beautiful score behind it. I don't know if you can really call it a score, but some instrumentation. You know, I'm not going to dispute that word yeah. at this point because it, it's, I mean, it it's, sounds so broad that it, it's almost trying to imply there there's a score, you know, there's, that the, the song is really larger than however long it is. I mean, what is it, like four minutes? It couldn't really be any long. Maybe maybe it's a little bit longer. So I think it's one of the longer tracks it in this gives album, this, actually. It gives this vastness to this song that was already impactful and powerful and made... It's, it's this idea of tone, which we'll come back to. The fact that the tone of the song was a little goofy in the original version because of the basic backbeat. But this version, because of the depth of everything behind it and supporting it, gives it this massive feel. It was hypnotizing for a couple of reasons. And like I said, one was, the, was his natural voice. But another was also the, the style of the lyrics here, which are really just... Verse, 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 verse. I mean, the one refrain is chocolate rain. And then it's just, you know, stanza after stanza after stanza. It's a very unusual format because it doesn't really rely on any hook to return to. You're constantly at the hook every single time he says chocolate rain, but that's just reiterated over and over. And again, this is this is commenting on the original piece simultaneously while commenting on this, but it, it makes... It seems like this was made to be expanded upon because it's true there was that one little hole in the original version and the the hole was was the backbeat the backbeat was a little bit goofy the backbeat was the one thing that didn't have that hypnotizing quality you could be lost in his voice you could be lost in 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 the constant repetition of of this of this very provocative lyric but then you kind of have to oh and also the keyboard itself the keyboard was another thing for the original track i have to say but there was one thing that you kind of could pull away from and that was the cheesy backbeat so all of a sudden rip away the cheesy backbeat and replace it with something that has a lot more breadth and that's what sisirka did here i think it was brilliant this is this is the ideal homage to an already uh an already enticing track i have two sentences for this whole thing Sit there and listen to it. And drown in it. This is a song that has full depth and you just have to sit there and listen. I don't like analyzing this song because I feel like it's actually taking away from how awesome it really is. I'm going to disagree I, with you there. I think there's, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to say about what he's doing here. Yeah, but this song, I don't really want to nitpick. Because I feel like the only way to truly understand it can it cannot be done with an explanation. You just have to listen. Now, to I'm it. not trying to describe it. In, in a, I'm really just trying to kind of bring the original to life and and sort of, I guess, kind of explain what, what, not necessarily what he's doing, but sort of how he's doing it. I think it's just something to note. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
we and, and also I encourage anyone to listen to the original track if they haven't heard it. I mean, right. I, well, I, I I was I'm a latecomer sure, to this whole Tazon Day I'm, thing. I'm pretty sure not everyone else was under the same rock you were back in 2007. Not everyone, but great. some people were. Not every. I mean, it's it's a far cry for every single meme to go seen by everyone. Yeah, but that was one of the bigger ones. Well, there is a reason why we have a website called Meme Center. Yes, but if you if you go on there once a week, you will learn every meme. <laughs> Fair enough. That's a hobby if I've ever heard one. Thankfully, um, if we have no cash, our next track will be a problem because no credit card is track 12. Not my worst transition, but probably not my best either. This is a uh, mashup of just Power of Love. Not mashup, remix. Remix, sorry. Yes, this was, well, remix, mash, a self-mashing, if you will, of Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the News. Um, best known from the Back to the Future soundtrack. This was an interesting choice for a mashup or a remix, rather, because he only chose select lines and mostly used the instrumentation from the intro and the chorus, and then did use a lot of distortion changes. Um, there was a guitar solo at the end that was from the original track, um, somewhere around the three-minute mark. This was one of the longer tracks. This one was, I believe, three or four minutes, maybe even five. This is this is something that I think actually example uh, gives example of one of his bigger flaws. The same sort of issue I had with Doe, same sort of issue I had with uh, Full Mouth is that by only sampling such a select part of the song, he's not really. Uh, acknowledging or utilizing the full potential of the source material by he's he's hindering himself in this case it gets very repetitive it gets it's it's it loses so much power from the original and doesn't replace it with anything else that's nearly as enticing for me it's very lackluster I mean, I'm split on that. Granted, of course, I, I, I love the original track. It was very much popularized with Back to the Future, one of my favorite films. But then again, um, I'll, I'll agree with you on one level. And it, yes, from a... It is lackluster, certainly, from from the perspective of, I guess, a couple things. I mean, I, I was impressed by what he was able to do. But, yeah, it's not like I'm really reading into this, in this track uh, with the same scrutiny that I've read into the previous tracks. This, I, I want to defend it for only one reason uh, against what you said, and that's um, the fact that I don't think there's, I don't think you should sneeze at, at honing in on a specific part of a track, because there's been very great things done with specific sound bites, and even though this may not be one of the greatest things done with specific sound bites, it's still interesting. It's an experiment. So when you say, f uh, using the source material to its fullest potential, I, I kind of want to argue and say that's a little bit irrelevant because this was an experiment on a more narrow part of the song, and I accepted that. I mean, I think that it was not anywhere near the best track on the record, but I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was a failed potential. I just thought it was fun, and it it's 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 okay. Maybe people laugh at the original, uh, <laughs> the original, um, Huey Lewis, uh, maybe, t because they laugh at the original Huey Lewis, it's hard to laugh at a remix of Huey Lewis, it's I almost redundant. I don't think redundant. they laugh at it. 
I don't feel like they laugh at that people song. do. No, people. I mean people. I don't think people. do. I'm being very general. I don't Not think everyone. They generally though. do. I think this is a really well recognized love song. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's it's preachy. I I run into a lot of jokes about Huey Lewis in the news. I don't see why there has to be so many, but I don't know. It's what I encounter. Well, I think in the my reason travels. there's so many jokes about Huey Lewis in the news is because they were a rock and roll band. That were the antithesis of the rock and roll band. They were all clean cut. They were straight edge. They didn't really party, get sick. They didn't smash AKA stuff. AKA they were the original rock and roll band. Right, but in the time period of the eighties, where yeah, they should. Oh, but that's funny though, because the eighties, even though the eighties had the opposite edge, like the punk and the and the death metal was starting to you know come to fruition, there was a there was another movement in the eighties simultaneously that was just as much a throwback to the fifties as the fifties were. It was. It was New Age, and they were clean-cut, and they were straightforward. Granted, this is not a... I mean, I would never call Huey Lewis New Age, but still, they fit the bill. They fit the bill in terms of appearance. Yeah. So, no, it's not uncharacteristic for the 80s, I'm arguing. If anything, they were actually a great fusion of New Age and rock and roll, in and, and, and the words you just said. Yeah. Yeah. The 80s liked their, their clean-cut simultaneously with their... Uh... Hair metal. Exactly. Sure. But we did run into another problem with this song. Did we? The super long, way too long ending. It, it did run a lot longer yeah, than it it, it didn't just run long for me. I was really... I was I was starting to mime funny things at Steve by the end of it. Because I'm like, just cut it, man. Just speed it up. Just go somewhere with it. Yeah. It, 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 it did exactly what I just did. It just kept going. Did not enjoy it. Thankfully, the next track was much, much shorter. Really creepy, too. So the next the, the next track is an interlude. It's 24 seconds long, or maybe 34 seconds. Bega interlude. It's called Bega interlude, and it is quite literally a interlude featuring Mambo number no. 5, but stripped down and tinny as if coming through an old radio, and it really sounded like for 30 seconds we were being haunted by Mambo number no. 5. And no vocals. It was just, just the instrumentation da, da, of the chorus, da, 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 but so low. But it's so is he, is background. It was scary. well. It sounded like something that would have come out of the radios in Bioshock. I mean, what year was this track again? Nineties. Uh, well, okay. Well, I'm starting to get a theme uh, from pop. the nineties on this. It's album. a pop nineties pop, or maybe too early two thousand. But it was definitely a pop. I see no reason why we should be haunted by it, but it it. You know, it's an interesting idea. I definitely have to say, it, uh, John, you pointed out that it sounded like an orchestra warming up, and I thought that yeah. was a very descriptive way of putting it. Until it, you it's in the background the volume and heard what was going on. I had to crank this thing up to max. I mean, from it sounds like you're recording an orchestra warming up even from a distance. So not only are you getting just pitter-patter of, well, of, of vague bits of melody here and there, but you're standing way off the distance and you're really not in the spotlight. You know what? It was interesting. I, I think it's supposed to reflect this idea that we're haunted by these old 90s tracks, so that we can't get rid of them. Eh. And this idea that also it's it's, it's mostly that it's really low, and when you turn it up, you hear what it is, but then you're kind of like, oh, is that what it is? That's weird. Why is it so low? Why is it so hollow? It's got this kind of very ghostly essence well, to it. It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's, it's haunting, but it's more of a, your neighbor downstairs is playing the radio loud enough that you can hear it's being played, but not quite loud enough to know what's being played. 
It's unidentifiable. It's the unknown more than that. Well, there's no reason to tack on additional metaphors here. I think you have a good one with the orchestra warming up. It's very vague. I think it's enough to say that it's vague. You don't know um, where it's going. I, I almost don't want to go too far uh, with with the 90s thing, like you said. But then again, it's not a bad, it's not a bad call, Matt. I mean, to say that 90s, pop 90s themes are haunting us in a way, it's actually not bad when you consider some many other tracks on this album. I, I just said, actually, not just a minute ago, that, that it's yet another 90s track here, which this album seems to be dominated by. Um, I mean, even, it definitely is more of a period study. I mean, think of the even the sound bites, the Simpsons dough earlier yeah. on, the Austin Powers, yeah, baby, all '90s references too. Very much. We get a little bit of early 2000s crossover. We get some late '80s with the Power of Love yeah. and whatnot, and then there's that very odd uh, throw-in with the Masorskis at the very um, the pictures in an ex- exhibition with track one. So yeah, I don't know. It's I, I do think there's a haunting quality to this album, somewhat of these these echoes or from the past. And actually, I think I just called it Pictures. At, why else would you pick an, a track called Pictures at an Exhibition, which was actually the original title of Mazorsky's. So, yeah, it, it, they're just pictures. It's kind of got that faded photographs feeling. Snapshots of yeah. different things. Um, and yet they didn't use Nickelback. Thank, we should be thankful of that. Then we'd have to listen to an. He's trolling you enough with All Star. Maybe he's yeah. not that cruel. That's true too. Well, we don't we don't get All Star and Melt Everyone. So Melt Everyone, <laughs> which is my favorite track. It's my second favorite. Wait, you just said you had a favorite track. <laughs> no, I said, um, like Tears in Chocolate Rain was almost his favorite track. Yeah, oh, really? this is actually my favorite track. Dang. Melt Everyone, first of all, features. A song by one of my favorite artists. I'm a big fan of Rob Thomas, both in his work solo and with Matchbox 20. This Melt Everyone features Smooth by um, Santana and Rob Thomas. However, it's only represented in specific places. He takes Rob Thomas's natural, broken, kind of raspy voice and adds so much effect to it that it sounds computeristic and disjointed. There is one aspect of the original track that I don't believe actually undergoes much of a shift, and that is... The guitar work. You can't mess with Santana. But you add, Just putting that out there. But everything else, they added this glitchy, techy it's overlap. Chip it's, it's, it's essentially it's chiptown music, but still yeah. melodic enough and with enough other sounds to go with the chip tune, it adds this creepy... Castlevania-esque vibe to the song. He took the line melt everyone from the actual song and did it to the song. I like that idea. Well, see, now you're going right against what you just said, because in many ways that's the same thing that is that is honing, that is isolating a piece of a track, right? Which, obviously, in the last track was, um, well, two tracks ago, was no credit card. Just one no credit card to ride this train from Power of Love. And here it's Melt Everyone. And he plays around with these single tracks. But the difference is... No, 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 but the difference is... This is, he's taking the the whole song. He's taking the line, Melt Everyone, and not making a track around that line, but applying that idea to the track. But otherwise, it's still the full song. Whereas in No Credit Card, John's gripe was he's only using parts of the song. He's using the tiniest little Does he of really the song. use the full song yep. here and yep. it, it melt it? From everyone? beginning yeah. to end. 
from beginning to end. Yep, it's the entire track. It's easy to lose that, just nope. considering that um, Not at all, I was more know. I was more focused on the music, to be honest. And see, I was more focused on the lyrics because really? I love I love Rob Thomas's voice, so I follow it very easily. I was singing and along with even it. with the, even with the vocalizer though, because Rob yes. Thomas is singing is put through this really grating Still vocalizer with the same uh, abrasive quality as we get back in. Uh, Still followed it because I know the ly- that song backwards and forwards and upside down, and I'm a fan of the track. It is the complete song. I'm assuring you. I can sing along with it, and I was able to sing along with it. Um, okay, and what fair we got enough. Back in, what but this was the. Back... I'm gonna put it out there that this is the same. This is uh, this is the first instance actually where I was probably more um, obsessed, I guess, with what Cicerga was doing than what the uh, the intricacies of the source material was. Um, so I guess you could say I was less interested in smooth here, but I was a lot more interested in the eight bit work that Sisirga was doing. How he was oh. sort of taking the original work and then kind of replacing it with There's this There's no argument odd. there. Yeah. Absolutely not. That's that's the quintessence. I mean, that's, that's well, yes, the genius. Well, yes, but here. it's still all pulled from this base of smooth. The guitar work, because the guitar sure. doesn't change. And also... The actual chiptune parallels. Doesn't yeah. exactly restate it, but it parallels the original beat work from Smooth. But hands down, the music is the most interesting part of this track. I'm just saying I was able to follow the lyrics. It also but... it also speaks to the original title. I mean, just think think what is smoother than something that's been completely melted and puddled and everything like that. It levels out, it spreads out, it becomes just one glossy little thing. It also speaks to the theme work that we've seemed to be developing of something in the past. I, I liken to the the way the vocals were being played as melted tape deck. I mean, it's damaged. It's, you know, old and almost, you know, ancient. This would have been recorded on a cassette as much as it might have been on a CD. Sure. It would have been damaged. You would have had, you know, maybe scoring or something like that. You throw it into, you know, 1980s whatever car you drive. You throw it in there, it gets damaged, it gets broken apart. That's what happened here. Even, that's even that though, history being destroyed. Even though it's set in a framework that's very much a much more modern, chiptune-styled electronica idea. I was just going to say that. That also the, originated back in the 80s. I'm going on my little tirade, don't interrupt. Also originated back in the 80s. It is kind of the personification of this theme work you're talking about here. It took an idea, it made it both old and new at the same time. Maybe I'm just not as connected to the original track to see it as such. I see Santana, believe it or not, as a little more of a timeless thing. I don't see his work as like a period study. Well, no, no, I'm not saying that Santana... I'm saying the way he treated this track speaks exactly to the theme work of what you guys were developing and what I'm, I am on board on. It's, it's both old and new at the same time. It's undergone a transformation, but still... But you kind of take a an evolutionary step back in style. It is exactly what it is. Forget about the song itself. Doing this to a song, it wouldn't matter what it was at that point, is a very pointed statement. To do it in such a way, to hone in on that little idea that one little line melt everyone, and do it to the song, to melt the song, to puddle the song, while re- trying to reinvent it is... is a incredible idea. I'm going to take this a completely different route because I still am kind of clean. I mean, I do think that your your 
theme idea, your time raid, uh, starting with what Matt said also, is what is a big part of this album, but I also think a lot of it is about juxtaposition. I think that's why you still have to treat it as a comedy album in the end, because I think the same juxtaposition, let's say, that I got back with, uh, with Alanis and, um, uh, and the Full House theme is kind of what I'm getting here. I would almost say that, that you're detracting the smooth quality by adding these very harsh 8-bit sounds. And I think that is, is sort of the joke. So it's just another perspective no, that I have. It doesn't make me enjoy the song any less. It's just really more where I'm coming from here. I, I than, totally than a, agree with that. Okay. I totally agree with that. Fair enough. By destroying the song in such a way, destroying the vocals and devolving the music to a very simplistic 8-bit style. Oh, but it's not devolving. I mean, even simplistic is not really the word to describe it, because actually I would... No, I, no mean, I know. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. But either either way, I, I should insert that I think this is... This shows his uh, handiwork more than many other tracks on this album. I think it probably took the most care in terms of layering, um, uh, especially since he had to shift gears and really work with 8-bit uh, uh, sound bites. So, um... Yeah, it was, it was very intricate. That's really the only way I, w- I could describe this track. But I do think it was anything but smooth, which is um, why he probably changed it up to call it Melt Everyone, which is sort of a, a twisted way of saying the same thing, but it doesn't have to be smooth then. You can accomplish melting with uh, 8-bit sound bites. So, again, playing around with tone, which again we will come to. Emotional tone is what I got uh, a, a different spin on here. That's what I enjoyed out of it. There's also that one little aspect of Santana's guitar, which didn't shining, change, shining through. That was yeah, that was the the essence of it, and it actually managed to tie it all together. You might have had a more disparate uh, array of 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 beeps and boops if it wasn't for that that Santana guitar as the anchor throughout it all. So yeah, very interesting. And of course, we get the all star interlude. <laughs> right, which is which becomes a running gag for the rest of this album. Yeah, it's that's why I knew I knew something point. was broken. I had nearly forgotten. I knew something was broken in this album. Granted, you're right, smooth mostly plays uh, beginning to end, but it breaks at a point to to introduce All Star, which the lyrics of which we are not lost on at this point. And speaking of All Star not being lost on us, track fifteen, the sharpest tool, takes another Lyric. look at All Star. This time, adding a voice filter on his singing and putting it over a very hectic beat work and drum and drum machine to make it sound more like a death metal song. And it does change the tonality and the emotion hmm. of the track. Hectic, frantic, manic. Which ick should I go with? Manic. Manic. Because okay. it's this false positivity. It's like a if Rob Zombie wrote All Star, this is what it would sound like. That's what I said. It is. It is what John said, and he hit the nail on the head. Not just Rob Zombie. It was like a Rob John. Zombie slasher movie theme work for All Star. And it was mean and disturbing, and like Satan was crawling out of the pit to say things to you. I mean, it, it's it's it was scary. This wasn't the best track on the album for me, but I was interested in the texture here. Definitely as a result of of the manic quality here, but also because of this sort of pitter-patter all over the place, this whispered rasp um that the vo- that the that the the singer hey, has. No. 
Yep. You're an all-star. Like, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's grumbly. It's it's awkward. It's snort, um, snort, growl. It, it's not to the same. I I don't want to use. I don't want to cause the. Uh, how to put this? It's not the same sound bite that we've been getting. Let's say in the first track, but it's similar. You know, he has that that refrain where he goes back to that same sound, where everything is a little bit more muffled. He does, does that several points of this album, but this time it's even more muffled than that. It's like he's taking everything a little bit, a little, just down a notch here. And and when you combine that effect with these sort of metallic sound bites, everything sounds very industrial, kind of industrial a little bit. But, I mean, not to mention just that, but also rhythmically, you get these sort of machine gun speed flurries, you know, at certain points. It's very rhythmically, uh, uh, it's all over the place, frankly. It's just kind of a spectacle. I don't want to go too far with this, but it's a spectacle to behold. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, track 16, Mullet with Butterfly Wings, which I'm actually getting now. Um, oh, do you know now, are you? <laughs> well, because the original track by Smashing Pumpkins that's part of this is Bullet with Butterfly Bullet Wings. Bullet with Butterfly Wings. So, it's so let's take the most late 80s, early 90s hairstyle we could possibly think of, which is the Mullet. Um, for the most late 80s, early 90s, well, I guess really entrenched in the 80s, uh, Loverboy, I believe was the band, and Working, Working for, for the, the weekend, weekend was the song. Mashed up with Smashing Pumpkins, as I said, Bullet uh, with Butterfly Wings. The interesting thing about this is it still fits Steve's, not, well, Neil's format, but the one that Steve keep bringing up, of <laughs> my format now. taking my. one song and putting it over another set of music take lyrics you know vocals of one song and put it over the 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 music of another yep however this time instead of just doing one and one we get to see both sides of the coin it starts with the music two lover boys working for the weekend with the vocals from smashing pumpkins which makes smashing pumpkins never sound more hopeful and happy and i mean it still sounds you know depressing and and sad and a little bit of slashery, like Smashing is, but it yeah I, I don't know this this is this is you know their light side I guess, and then it goes from <laughs> there to about at the halfway mark, the music from Bullet with Butterfly Wings, with the vocals and lyrics from Working for the Weekend. Now this is where it was interesting because. What I've forgotten was there's a natural echo on Loverboy's vocals, but when you put it over a more hollow, darker song, it really makes Loverboy sound creepy, and the lyrics sound really creepy. Not just creepy, but full-fledged hopelessness. Uh, just, just the lines of you're, you're, you're working for the weekend. I mean, the way it's explained, it's like. Everything you do in life is just to try to be happy, and there's no choice. You'll never be happy. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, that's really sad. I just feel like this is one of the best examples on the album of how when you change the music under the words being said, it can very easily change the meaning of those words. Which is what we try to emphasize in many, many album reviews. You know, sometimes it doesn't always matter what you're saying. If the music doesn't support it, then it can it can kind of suffer artistically, and he's kind of just playing around with that concept and showing you both sides of the coin, face value. And it worked very well. And, and I mean, it's very, very... It's, it wasn't even that they took the straight music from Smashing too, they took 
really just the guitar work. Even the drums were out of it for the most part. A lot of the percussion was gone. Yeah. And when you hear lines, <laughs> when you hear everyone's going off the deep end, everyone needs a second chance. Oh, it's just that's just creep, man. Forlorn. That's like Edgar Allan Poe kind of creep. It's also, I mean, considering this is the penultimate uh, track here on this album, I think using the, those those lyrics right there from Working for the Weekend, I mean, it's uplifting in its own way, in a more in a more honed way, I guess you could say, than All Star really is, and I think it's I think it's appropriate that he's sort of switching the angle at this point since there seems to be a kind of underlying critique of of that carefree optimism kind of again implying that there's a struggle beneath and working for the weekend implies the struggle as opposed to the blindness again i don't think there's any heart there's any um mouth malice here or uh hard feelings against um, Smash Mouth. I do think this is an homage, but I think there is that artistic spin and, and a message beneath it. So, yeah, I think the uh, the lyrics to Working for the Weekend worked really, really well, well here. And it took one of the happiest songs and, and transformed it forever for me. There you are. Our final track on the album is called Smooth Flow. And he t- Neil takes us out on a very peaceful note. Um, this mix is... Um, what was it? Uh, Enya's? Enya's. Enya, Enya's Sail Away with We Have the Return of Smooth by uh, Rob Thomas featuring... By Santana. Santana, uh, Santana featuring, featuring Rob, Rob Thomas. Thomas. Um, order matters, actually. So this one, it decides to leave Rob Thomas's vocals more or less untouched, but they are beautifully layered over Enya's Sail Away musically. And this is something that gave the song a more beautiful meaning. I mean... The idea of looking, you know, a hot summer day, looking for fun, looking for that beautiful woman, putting it over Sail Away gave it a more endearing... Ethereal. Ethereal quality. Ethereal. Ethereal. That's what I said. <laughs> Same thing. This one I've actually heard both Top ways. Um, but it made it sound gorgeous. It just gave it this breath, breathiness that the original track doesn't have, but with this mix, it does. I mean, they they did throw in those those couple of lines from All Star again, which just made me exhausted. <laughs> so yeah, I gotta say, you know, I mean, as much as I know, it's totally intertwined with the theme here because I, that's weird. I mean, it throws in the All Star lyrics here again, where I thought the penultimate track might have actually been spinning it in the reverse, but then he throws this right back here again, maybe as if to imply. I don't know, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but maybe as if to imply that it does kind of really come back to hope in the end. Like, you have to take that moment where you have to be real, but then it's still going to come back to hope. I mean, everything kind of falls back on, on luck at a certain point, doesn't it? Right. Well, at times, I mean, it takes Smooth, which is very much a braggart type of a song. Yeah. It's very much a... And kind of makes it a lovely dream More sincere. That, it, it makes it sincere. And and it's done in a beautiful way, and I actually quite like it as a closure. Considering how abrasive the start of the album was, the fact that the ending was so peaceful is kind of full circle. Eh, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of themes in this also with relaxing and whatnot, with the whole concept of let it be. Yeah. I think there's a peaceful element there, whereas 
I don't know. I feel like he's just kind of coming at the idea of of uh, hashing out your problems from a multiple multitude of angles. Um, you know, relax on one ha one hand, don't worry about it. But then on another hand, well, work when you need to work. Then on another hand, uh, hope sometimes hope and and faith is all you need. Beneath that, it kind of says, well, no one of those things relied upon can help you. I think that sums it up quite well. So, uh... I'll take us into the wrap-up. Go for it. I actually the enjoyed the originals of every single one of these songs that was used. I didn't like what he did with a lot of them. Because I didn't, as I said uh, back in, um, what, what, which one did I say? When I really saw it was No Credit Card, Power of Love. I feel like he's taking these great songs, and some of them really have a lot of potential. Just look at Smells Like Team Spirit. It's, it's been used to really do some amazing things for other songs. I think he's underutilizing a lot of the stuff that he's he's got here. Um, that being said, he actually has a very good ear for a lot of his layering work, a lot of his mashup work, uh, a lot of his remixing. He he's got a he's got control, which is what a lot of remixing doesn't have. In a live setting, having the illusion of uh, everything going awry of things starting to break down is a is a great theme but it's actually a lot of control involved with it a lot of planning ahead of how you're going to do something that's what really makes it feel spur of the moment we use words like ad hoc during the podcast but you can't do these sort of things remixes and mashups like this as an ad hoc idea not all the songs, though, came out really that well. I, I, I really thought Doe was very mediocre at best. There was a lot of mediocrity. That's, that's I think, really the, the major crux I have, the major problem I have with this. It seems just a simple layering. Oh, there's a lot of issues, but I love so many of these songs. I really don't know how to, to explain it, but my rating... My rating is like a th my rating is a 3.5. There's a lot of good here and a lot of intelligence, but it's just there's so many faults in this album. I can't put it higher than that. All I right. Know, I really don't know where to go with on this one. But I know where I stand. No, it's a, it's a, it's a fair rating. You're definitely thinking about uh I think uh the music a little more in this instance. Which is a, I mean, it's a strange one. Let's get, let's face it. We know exactly what we're looking at here. We're looking at a mashup album. The original the the original material was not written. This is an exercise in something kind of different. The only I mean, we've done have we only done maybe one remix album before? We've done Mogwai's thing, uh, which was actually a collection of artists remixing yeah. Mogwai's tracks. Yeah. And we did We're at Weird Al, which had its own fair share of Granted, spoofs and remixes. That's very similar in concept, actually. True. You know, I gotta say something about this. I think, even though I'm I'm very intrigued by by the remixing that's there and by the, the, the expert computer work 
that's going on, and I agree it's not there in every single track. Sometimes the the random devil, you know, enters the room and sort of tries to dominate things, and I, I call him a devil because he seems to be somewhat of an entity which which will take over the um, the focus of an artist in any given moment. I mean, you said, John, that he has focus, and I do think he has focused in places, but there are also those moments where I just know he's sitting down to have fun. And it is enjoyable on, on that level alone, but maybe beyond that, I gotta wonder, and I was scratching my head in that regard uh, through many of these earlier tracks. I think I know where my biggest issue comes from, and I think this might be where you're coming from, too. Yeah, it's, it's fun, but... We're not dealing with original work here, per se. We're dealing with the adaptation of original work. Right. And because these are very familiar, and even the stuff that's not familiar you can hear, you can find out what it was originally, I I think I'm more nitpicky in saying he should have done this this way, or that way, or this might have sounded better than I usually am. I think that's my major major point and why I'm giving it a 3.5 because I think there could have been a better way and I know it's very conceited of me to say something like that based on your knowledge of remix music and whatnot you can conceive of better ways in which it could have been done right it's it's, you know you can kind of get trapped in a circle there so I'm going to just focus on a different area just in my wrap up here and try to focus on 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 his choices that why he chose the the um the tracks he did because you know if it was left at just simple random tracks that seemed like they would be fun to to throw in a computer and and try something which maybe maybe behind it there that may have been a a reason but i think the final product seems to show more and that's to the theme that we've been describing or trying to convey as we as we find it and that is certainly honing honing on the 90s media culture, the 90s, uh, the 90s pop singles, and for that exact reason, I honestly wish, wish that we were doing this review with Gary and Nate of Average Intelligence. Mm. I really, really do. I think that would have been an, I really would have appreciated their insight on an album like this. Yeah, but remember, they don't have a lot of knowledge of music, and th- they've said Most they, of this all is these... pop. This yeah, is just pop. pop they pop, definitely pop. would have heard all of these songs. Yeah, Guarantee sure. you. And, um, I mean, I would have loved to hear their insight on the full house theme and whatnot. It just seems like it would have been an interesting experiment. Because I'm thinking, really, of the type of artist that Neil Sasurga is. He is a pop culture artist. He hit his stride with um, with the ultimate showdown, the ultimate destiny, which is just pop culture, you know, inundation. And then on top of that, he kind of dips his toes into whatever really is sort of the flavor that day and making his little commentary here and there. And sometimes he is just silly behind that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's poignancy where you find it, but not always. And that's okay. So I think for that reason, you know, I'm not going to go all out with this, but I'm also not going to be very critical. I think a, a, a fair rating here for me would be 3.8. I'm going a little bit higher in this regard. I can't quite go for the full realm because I know that there's not a fully formed idea there and it's just having fun in some areas, certainly with an instance like Power of, not Power of Love, um, no credit card. There seems to be just kind of like a temporary departure. 
and then I just kind of have to sit and enjoy the ride. And I'm okay with that, but it, it can only take me so far. This album is a spectacle, but it is a really intricate spectacle. That's a pretty poignant way to describe it. I mean, I really only have one way to describe the album for me, really. There's really only one word that really describes how it makes me feel. Bees! Bees. Um, that's really the essence of where I'm coming at from this album. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Essence. Bees? I'll get to it, if you didn't interrupt me. Uh. This idea in that track that while there could be a lot of quality and, well, there is a lot of quality and a lot of intelligence behind this record, knowing Neil Sasegra's work as well as I do, because I am a big fan of his other stuff. I actually have all of the Lemon Demon albums. It comes down to bees and that sentiment. And the sentiment is, it's about having fun and making something for a laugh. There are moments of seriousness. I mean, we're not going to forget Like Tears of Chocolate Rain. But on the whole, it's about creating something fun. I think that these other themes were valid. And these things that we found, he may have planned. Or he may listen to this review if he does and go, What the hell are those three guys talking about? I just mixed a thing. We don't know. But I think that the ultimate essence of where Neil comes from is to make something fun that people will enjoy. And he definitely accomplishes that here easily while still taking us on an emotional ride in some moments. And laughter is an important emotion. I'm only going to interject to say this one thing. It's interesting you point that out. Obviously, we, uh, we seem to sync up on the bees moment. But that's just where I'm coming from. Maybe this is a hard album for me to figure out where to put it and how to rate it. There are moments where it is very poignant, and there are moments where it is very just comedic. But here's the thing. I could have rated this so much higher on the comedy album, on the comedy album spectrum if I got a lot more bees. I wanted more bees. But that's not really fluid throughout this album. It comes in moments, and it's hilarious when it happens. But it's not, you know, it's, it's, this, he's somewhere between comedy, musicality, and, and tragedy. Eh, I don't want to go so far as tragedy, but yes, he, he, had, tragedy. he has themes, he has, I think, I'm, I, I would hope that I'm not going too far on a limb to, to, uh, you know, glean what he what he's trying to say at some certain moments here. But that's why I'm saying that I rate it more on a on a comedy level. No, not that. even on a comedy level. Well, on a comedy level, but more on an enjoyment level, a personal <laughs> oh, enjoyment right. level. Okay. We've discussed in the past that sometimes you rate an album based on personal tastes, above and beyond anything else. It depends on how it hits you. And the reality is, is that most of these songs hit the right buttons. Even the ones that were more abrasive, still hit the right buttons at the right moment for me. And I think it's a solid mashup album as just a presentation of how off the wall Neil Sasirga is. It's a great representation of that. Because off the wall can be serious one moment, funny the next, introspective, then, you know, talented, blowing with talent. I mean, True. It, I think it's a great cross-section of him as a man, as a person, as an artist. Because he is all over the place in his work. Um, and that's why I think for me, in this at least spectrum of personal representation for Neil Sasirga, it's it's a three nine. It's almost a four. It's a three nine. The reason it's not a four is because there are still mo moments of utter suffering for the listener. But and yet you yeah. know that that's still part of it. You know, that's and it's on purpose. Pulling. 
It's him trolling the, the listeners. We've never really had to rate a troll before, because how does one do that? <laughs> because if you rate him lower, it's kind of what he wants anyway. True. If I were to True. rate him as a troll, I would be rating in the twos, because I don't like trolls. The trolls right. are not good. No, they belong under the bridges. He's not... Like the bridges and cover them. He's not the trolling to troll people in the sense... Ow. He's just trying to have fun with the audience, and he knows what'll get a rise and what'll get a no, laugh. If you're in on the joke, it's, it is a lot better, and we're kind of in on the joke of what's going on here. Since we're all music fans, for sure. Yeah. Um, so it's a 3-9 for me. I, I enjoy it, and I would actually listen to this regularly. I think it's a nice, fun alternative. All right, fair enough. I have to, um, well, no, I'm not changing anything. I think I'm satisfied with where I left it, but I definitely have to say that on the personal enjoyment level, it is, I, I do treat the, most of these tracks as spectacles, but I gotta say, I, I, I really, I like him when he's honing his craft on something that really brings new ideas to the table and for me that was a case like uh like um chocolate rain or tears like chocolate rain that that's really what i want out of this in which case i take a page from your book matt and say that will go in a playlist the others i might dip into here and there but the album uh, album as death mouth for me it's it all it all comes back to chocolate rain (laughs) that's fair um Wow, this album took a lot longer to review than I thought it would, honestly. It's because we were doing twice as many songs over a long album. It was a long album. Um, well, we have a couple of things to say um, to, uh, to close out. But first, uh, do your... Um, uh, Overall rating. I mean, there's no purchasing because it's actually available for free online. So buy it. Just get it. Get this. There's and no reason you, not to. There's really no free. reason not to. It'll then, take up a little bit of space in your hard drive, but really, who's concerned about a hard drive space these days? And if you, if you think it's worth a buy... Donate. Yes, because you can donate to him, and it's definitely worth it, because he's a talented artist who does a lot of great work. So, get this for free, enjoy it, bask in it, and then donate him some money. Um, Everyone needs a spectacle in their library. I wanted to talk about tone in this, but, I mean, I'll be honest with you guys, I'm nodding off as it is. But I do want to talk a little bit about the fact that there are songs on this album that, because of an emotional tone the meaning of the songs completely flip. And it's very apparent on very specific places here. And I just think it's important to note that Neil plays with the fact that emotional tone can really, really influence and affect music on the whole. Right. I think we, we started to say this a little bit earlier uh, in in the instance where emotional tone... Starting with what you said, emotional tone can certainly flip your your reaction on a certain track. And looking at certain tracks on this album here, I mean there are some that are very straightforward. But yes, there are some where I can I can I can see the artist's hand at work, sort of switching the the uh, or or turning certain things on their head. And I do find it interesting, which is why I I guess uh, I'd like to talk just a little bit about um, how how you interpret emotional tone period from any artist i mean it, it's really i think a case-by-case basis it's kind of hard to say there's no one way to determine emotional tone because there's so many different kinds of music and presentation out there like you can't say that you only generate emotional tone from lyrics because there are songs that have no lyrics and you can still gather an emotional tone from it well, just just speaking with the idea of mashups, remixes, and covers, have either of you ever heard the Sid Vicious cover of Frank Sinatra's My Way? Can't say that I have. 
Well, you understand uh, the original one. Everyone's heard of the original one because commercials use it. Everybody uses it. So when Frank did My Way, it's very much that, you know, great seize the day kind of a song. An amazing song to connect to. Sid Vicious did it. And, I mean, first it's Sid Vicious, so it's nearly unintelligible at times to actually... You don't know what he's singing at first. It is such a... Same exact feel, except instead of, you know, the upstanding gentleman way of seizing the day, it's that, hell yeah, I'm not just going to seize the day, I'm going to take it, I'm going to take it away from everyone, I'm going to make it my day, it's going to be my day. Same song. Yeah, yeah. Same song, technically. Huge difference in the actual emotions. I loved it. It's one of my favorite covers. Hmm. Well, that's not a bad example. I'm trying to think of an example to that effect. Do you happen to have any examples of that effect? It's a tricky one. As far as what? Uh, to what effect? Just that two songs done by different artists have completely different feels? Yeah, outside of, for instance, the case of this mashup album, where you're kind of shown two songs and being forced to, to think of them... Uh, Okay, I've got a perfect example of right. the same the the same song by the same artist in two completely different ways. It goes back to our episode with Everlast, and mm. how <laughs> the original House of Pain jump around oh boy. is very in your face, very much, um, you know, a braggart song. The cover of himself, where he plays it acoustically, is more a crooning old man on a porch telling a story about the good old days but they're both the same guy same artist but it's how he sings it and the music behind it that completely changes the emotional tone it's a braggart but it's kind of a a forlorn longing of what was in that way and whether you like one or both you can agree that they both have those very distinct, different emotional Looking tones. Looking squarely at John because he yeah, I very much like dislikes that song. You don't have to. You can't disagree with my point. Well, though. if you're going to go back, I'm going to go back even further in our podcast to a discussion we actually had on air. I'm bringing it back. Bring um, it back. They might be giants, and their cover of Istanbul, not Constantinople, compared with the original by the Four Lads, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. The Four Lads was kind of a sultry, kind of crooner song, much in the same way as Frank Sinatra. Meanwhile, they might be giants did a, 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 a much more frantic version of it, a much more uh, energized version of it. Really did change the way you were going to think about the song. One is, you know, Istanbul, not Constantinople. It's Istanbul, not The Four Lads one was very smooth. Yes. Yeah. It was very much, you'd, you'd get a conga line. <laughs> that kind of idea. It would yeah. be on I Love Lucy's Husband the 2, I can't remember. The 1950s Copacabana. Exactly. Yeah. But They Might Be Giants is borderline thrashing. I mean, it's not there, but it's, it's They Might Be Giants. You don't know what genre they're doing at any given moment anyway. It was True. it was high energy. It was it was rock. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's really tough for me to con- uh, think of an example of this effect because it seems like now we're more talking about covers. It really comes down to that. I mean, a, well, co- a good cover will attempt, I think, to sort of turn the emotional to- uh, tone 
on its head, either that or accentuate it. Yeah, but even if we're just talking about covers, it's still, we're talking about the tones, the emotional tones of those covers. And it's a great way to give example as to how changing one or two lines or changing the actual music of a song can really reflect a completely different tone. Well, like I said, I mean, if we don't want to talk about covers, the song uh, Mullet with Butterfly Wings shows you how drastically you can change the tone of working for the weekend if you put it over different music. Same for uh, a bullet with butterfly wings. You take that song by Smashing Pumpkins, but put it over different music, and it changes the feel of that song. And that's kind of ultimately what I'm trying to show, is that context is actually very important with music. Very much, because otherwise, I mean, context is important, but at the same time, it also shows how songs are comprised of puzzle pieces really and how I mean, context could actually be meaningless context could be meaningless exactly i mean some a lot of let's face it a lot of pop music is written very much out of uh out of the the tools that we know the tools that are familiar with us granted you can have some art artistic uh spurtive artistic inspiration where you try to bring something new to the table but even then so, usually you're borrowing from something in some way so basically you're picking from a shelf you pick a certain time signature from a shelf you pick a certain singing style from a shelf and you kind of slap it together to form this pop piece obviously those things can be interchangeable you could just take one out swap it with another and just kind of play around with it from dusk till dawn i think we talked about this back in uh our Godsticks episode in episode 51 uh the topic was about this new trend of of taking music and and releasing it actually as as separate tracks which you can take from one take from the other that kind of links to this whole mashup remix culture that that neil sasirga is certainly borrowing from and I think a lot of that, the only reason it would exist is to play with emotional tone. If you see something else, if your artistic twist just happens to go in a different direction. Well, speaking of something that we kind of mentioned with Mouth to Everyone, uh, a lot of chiptune and 8-bit artists actually do just that. They release songs specifically in formats for other DJs to fool around with. And it's becoming a lot more prevalent because you, you do a song for... Zelda, you change a couple of chords here and there, and you're going to change the setting of, of where it's taking place in the in the context of the game easily. True. That that was actually a lot of early 8-bit music, a lot of early video game, or even uh, uh, early, early movie work music. Just by changing one or two chords here and there, you can completely rewrite a song. And then also in the... Uh, uh newer editions of these video games you also end up with the same thing like where they might want to take the original theme from the original game but here now you're making a remake or a sequel and whatnot you want to insert that in a new in a new way and and sort of or or in a new setting a new room however you want to say it a new boss battle whatever but you might want to borrow from the original theme and that's going to sort of find its way in, but you need to manipulate it somehow. And that requires big, or- orchestration, like reorchestration. A, like a big example of that was when I played for you the main title theme for Link Between Worlds, which uses the exact same chords as the original Link to the Past song, but it was reorchestrated, so it sounded much lusher and more beautiful. Right. Another example, though, and I think this is a, probably my biggest example of the, the importance of emotional tone in music, is if you take 50s music 
and then play it through what sounds like a broken radio in an empty hallway, you get Bioshock. And something that was <laughs> filled with joy and dancing and was beautiful now sounds terrifying and full of fear and horror because it's how it's being played and where it goes and the context and environment that really changes the emotional tone of that music. Well, one one trope in, in horror itself is the little girl singing Rockabye Baby or Buckle Your Shoe or some sort of old school nursery rhyme that's nice and sweet and may have some weird origins like Ring Around the Rosie. But think of Ring Around the Rosie spoken or sung by, you know, creepy little girl coming out of a radio or ex- ex- coming out of the walls just... One, two, buckle my shoe. Like, that is the fear soundtrack for so many B-level movies. It's it's supposed to be a sweet mother goose or nursery rhyme or something like that, and, and, it's, and it's just creepy. You know, there's a great Vsauce uh, YouTube video to this effect, and I, I've probably uh, touted Vsauce before, um, especially with the video regarding... Um, Will we ever run out of new music and whatnot? He's a, on he's a scientist. He makes excellent points. He's a teacher, and this one uh, a study that he conducted was was why we are scared of things, and it actually has to do with with the concept of what is familiar, but slightly different, and sometimes it relies on just the subtlest, slightest little changes. Like for instance, you have a perfectly normal looking doll but the one difference is that he has no mouth everything else is perfect everything else is is exactly what you expect a doll to look like but no mouth or let's say no eyes or abnormally wider eyes even if it's just by the the narrow margin of like a couple of millimeters that's all it takes for us to be really really put out and 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 unsettled and clearly the same thing can can be applied to music actually speaking of the the eyes one of the biggest things uh, in early gold and silver age comic books was to make the eyes slightly closer together, yet slightly larger than they should be on villains. Right. To show right, right away, it's a villain. And same goes with the Disney. All you have to do is make them really, really wide, really bright, always, always looking very intently at things to meant to show innocence. Innocence is, is tends to be a... a uh, a familiar quality or a quality you can at least relate to it doesn't seem threatening which is why disney chooses that for most of their characters it's ideal for a kids film it also leads back to the uncanny valley thing and the fact that when you draw a human in in a cartoon or if you create an animated 3d model of jeff bridges jeff bridges you do as few close-ups of his face as possible because it's impossible to replicate eyes digitally the way human eyes look okay. and that little thing being off is just enough to make people uncomfortable yeah and that little and thing make them not believe it yeah well, that little thing is is the fact that a human's eye darts all the way around just like the little things that you do with the music to make it scary is to slightly distort it or make it sound like it's coming over radio or just give it like a that maybe a rusty twang in somewhere in there and you go from happy-go-lucky to fear at the same time use higher power chords and fearful, sad, or depressing can become uplifting, energizing, using same, you know, letter progressions or everything else could be the same, but hit it on a high note instead of a low note and all of a sudden it goes from depressing to 
exuberant. Speaking to this, this is why I, I, I constantly stress, or at least the reason why I like to point out the usage of, of, of various modes in music. This is why I throw out words like mixolydian and lydian and whatnot, because you take something and just change the scale slightly. For instance, the very comfortable major scale, and I'll point out like, oh, well, it just has one little difference, that little flat seven, to provide like a little awkwardness to the otherwise familiar familiar pleasure, familiar happiness that we all know and love. And then for Lydian, just raise that sharp four, then it sounds really eerie. Really eerie and still yet in a comfortable environment because now you're on the tritone, very, very dicey areas there. You're far in from the key and yet you're still really, really close to major by every other stretch. These little changes are enough to really twist around your, um, uh, your modal complexity and your, your emotional tone variations. That's all it takes. Slight little changes. So, yeah. I guess experimentation is kind of what we like to see and what we like to encourage here. But obviously, it can, it can, uh, it can intrigue while it can also repel. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, ultimately, I guess what we're saying is that emotional tone in music is very important. And can be <laughs> not just, easily... It's not just important, but it's dicey. Yeah, it can, well, I was getting to that. Yeah. When I, if I finished my sentence that I was in the middle of speaking, I was saying that it's both oh, oh, important. Oh, we're doing that. Okay. Yeah. And we finish it, things. It, it, it's important, but also uh, um, it can be very dicey, essentially. It's this idea that, you know, minor changes can completely change or even destroy what you're going for. And it can also be explained as... Steve tries to do it week after week after week, and a lot of it goes over my head until I have him explain it to me off air. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that sometimes reply, uh, begs a visual experience. If you were to hear these scales right next to one another, I mean, you'd you'd hear it. You'd see how that how that flat seven or that sharp four can really change up the uh, the, the overall effect of something. But <laughs> it, and apply that to a whole entire song, and you've got a whole another animal. And there's there there are auditory norms, like just think exactly. Of, Think of that we've made this joke before. The Inception is a epic, scary space noise. <laughs> always has been, always will be. As a result of it, yeah, and and I guess we could have a whole other discussion for a whole another day. Is is um is how these norms settle with us, or whether they might always have been with us. <laughs> I like to leave cliffhangers. Yes, well, well done. To um, be continued. Before I uh, get into wrapping up the show, why don't you uh, give us our spam email of the week, Steve? Spam email of the week. It's my theme song for the spam of the week. You bet it's spam of the week. It's time for your spam of the week. I there dare, are no... Uh, I, dare, <laughs> I dare you to do that same exact thing next week. You All better right. practice. All right, fine. And there'll be a theme song to it as well. There are no guarantees that the results you receive are the results you envision for yourself. People suffer not only physically, but also psychologically. Skin tags are most often benign growths that don't need treatment or removal. Skin tag causes. It's causes of skin tags. Yeah, I, 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 got, it, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. You that's, know those little bubble, bubbly... Men? Yes, I know what a skin tag is. I never is. got one, but I see them on people. That is, that is, that is good advice. I'm still challenging you to come up with a thing to, to, to make that your theme song next week. <laughs> I'm still you're, stuck on that. You're more concerned with that very well. Anyway, what's coming next week, Matt? Before we get to that, of course, I want to uh, thank everyone for listening. 
Um, please donate. We have a donate button on the website. The money you give will allow us to uh, branch out more musically, allow us to improve recording quality, get more art- artists on the show. Um, email us your suggestions, recommendations, complaints, or questions. The money you give will return to you in content. And, and that's not a scam. It sounds like a scam. It's really not. It's very true. Yes. Um, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're Crash Chords on Facebook. We're Crash Chords Web on Twitter um, with the little at symbol in the front. Um, review us on iTunes. <clears throat> we can get featured on iTunes, and that would definitely help um, push us to that next level. Is there such a thing as a positive pyramid scheme? I... Depends from your point of view. If you're a pharaoh, <laughs> yes. Yes, there is in fact a positive pyramid scheme. Yes, the One pyramid scheme is that you... your pyramids get built. Yes, and, and, it, and, it, and it grants you everlasting life. Also, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are adding content daily. We're going to eventually have a full backlog of the podcast streaming on YouTube, as well as some new video content as well that we're working on. Um, a lot of our... Uh, guests' musical renditions are already on YouTube. You can They're find Painless more... and Sarah Biz and the Wasties up there already. I'm working on a Painless and Parker music video. And Rude Boy. Rude Boy. Yes, Mr. Joe Rude as well. Our tentacles are in about every internet orifice at this point. Wow, could you make that any more disgusting? Don't try. I'm getting into our <laughs> guests for next week. So next week we're having uh, friends of mine and uh, friends to friends of ours, Afterbirth Monkey, who have been featured on the Epic Pie cast, which is Nelson Lugo and Mark Schaefer, uh, Schaefer the Dark Lords podcast. Um, Charles Stunning, who is one half of Afterbirth Monkey, is now the third host. Um, Afterbirth Monkey is made up of Mark Turner and Charles Stunning, two friends of mine. They do acoustic comedy rock, and they are a lot of fun. They are bringing us the album Katy Perry's Prism. Um, It's Katy Perry's latest record, which we've toyed with reviewing now we actually will um i i i was toying with my the cyrus at the time that you were toying with katie perry right you should definitely this, go this, get these yourself were... checked out if you were toilet toying with miley cyrus <laughs> this is probably true where's that but, tetanus shot but but so after birth monkey will be guests on the podcast they are going to uh play some songs for us and we are going to talk about them and katie perry's latest record so please join us next week um it should be a lot of fun there probably won't be any bees, but one never knows. We'll bring the bees. We will bring, we will the, bees. bring the bees. <laughs> and on that shocking note, remember, music is life. And, and life, life is, is bees! Good.